Hello. Hey, you there listening. What's up? It's the B-side. We are a spin-off podcast of the Film Stage Show and the Film Stage website. And we're talking about some Avengers. This is part two of me and Connor O'Donnell, me, Dan Mecca, and Connor O'Donnell talking about um, the original six Avengers from the MCU movies and B-sides they've made in their careers. In the first part, we talked about Mr. Robert Downey Jr., Scarlett Johansson, and Chris Evans, and uh, the movies they made at different points in their careers uh, before the MCU took a stranglehold to their careers. <laughs> um, uh, I'm only, I'm like a little kidding on that. And then... Um, it's like a 25% joke. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the, some of them are still, I mean, we still have the judge. We're still getting the judge. Doc, yeah, still have the soloist. Dr. Doolittle. Um, what have you? Ghost in the Shell. Um, you know, hey, Snowpiercer. In all seriousness, let's not forget. We, we got Snowpiercer. Um, That's good, yeah. Anyway... This time around, we're talking about the other three. Uh, the Hulk himself, Mark Ruffalo. Uh, the guy with the bows and arrows, Jeremy Renren. <laughs> and uh, Chris Hemsworth, who Connor on the last episode said uh, is his favorite Avenger, Mr. Thor. I think he might be. Yeah. yeah. I think he I think he might be. Um, he's my second favorite, Chris. Right. Sure. Well, we all pine for pine. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be. We I mean, real quick, I'm just gonna say it's Pine, Hemsworth, Evans, and then like a deep, deep, deep fourth Pratt. Right. But, and I yeah. think we are all shadow recruits for uh, Chris Pine. I will say this: it's funny thinking about it. He's the only Chris. He's the DC Chris. Right. They're all. Yeah. They're all in the MCU. I have a thought, too, and I didn't want to use it on the last episode uh, on Evans. I have a thought that I'm going to bring up when we get to Hemsworth uh, in, a, in a moment um, about Chris Pine, but I'll, I'll save it. Um, yeah, so I guess, so, you know, last time around we did The Singing Detective and The Perfect Score and The Nanny Diaries. So now with our back half of the Avengers on this episode... Uh, we're going to be covering, um, for Ruffalo, we're going to do the Brothers Bloom uh, from 2008. For Renner, we're going to do uh, Kill the Messenger uh, for, from 2014. And then for Hemsworth, we're going to do uh, In the Heart of the Sea, um, which is kind of a, that'll be an interesting one to talk about. With a little, um, with a Susan of Rush, like we said before. With oh, a, yes, of With course. a little, little, little nip, little, uh, little powdering oh, no. of Rush. Oh, we're ru- oh we're Russian. Oh, we're, we're gonna, gonna oh we gonna rush. We gonna be. And Russian. when I say rush, I'm talking about the Jason Patrick Jennifer Jason Lee drug cop movie from 1990. Obviously, what are you talking about? No, I'm kidding. Uh, though that is another pretty good. That, movie I was talking about the rush. same thing. Where yeah. are we not, okay, then are we not? what am I doing? Great. All right, Brothers Bloom. The director uh, of this movie. Yeah, let's just let, let's dive right in. Right, um, let's dive in. Let's dive into it. Yeah, yeah. We I, so just for quick context. We've seen Endgame, and we're going to talk about it uh, when we get through these movies in the context of we've now seen the movie, what do we want from these six actors now that we know how their games have ended or have they not ended, and blah, blah, blah. So Correct, yeah. So there if will you're, be I mean, spoilers if you for Endgame, slight spoilers or whatever. Yeah, uh, if at you the haven't seen this, it, but. yeah, if you haven't seen Endgame, we will, you know, fear not, you can still get through the bulk of this episode. You're right, and right. We will... Uh, we will delineate when you are, you know, no longer safe. Um, 
But yeah, I think um, Brothers Boom biggest budgeted movie Ryan Johnson's made so far. I'd say, right? What? What? That was a joke. I mean, it was a joke. No, it was a bad joke. (laughs) Though I like what. Though I said it was. I mean, you you, you said it with such earnestness. I will. I will say this: this movie lost money. Um, Yes, a lot of money. Yeah, this was his second movie after Brick. Which uh, was a uh, uh, film festival favorite, and people like a lot. I, I owed a rewatch. I, 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 you would think I would love it as a noir yeah. fan. So, I... so I owed a rewatch. But this one I loved when I saw it. I think me and you saw it together in theaters uh, when we were at Buffalo together, and um, it lost money. Yeah, it lost a lot of money. It cost somewhere in the world of twenty or thirty million, and I think it made uh, I don't know a couple. Right, like or like yeah, five. Made four, yeah, made four dollars. I think it made. I think it made like nine or ten million. Um, but yeah, still bad, bad, still way, way, way in the red. Um, I think this movie. Yeah, it says I'm seeing twenty million, and I'm seeing five point five for the gross. Oh, so gosh, wow, this was okay. some. This was Summit Entertainment. Yep. Um, and you know, funny looking at the specs here, production company listed is a production company called Endgame Entertainment. <laughs> here we are. How about that? But anyway, I'm gonna let you go for a minute because you love this movie. So take it away. Connor. I do. I stand this movie. I think um, you know there are people who give it some grief, and I think you know not. It's not unwarranted. I think a lot of people think this movie borders on being a little i don't tweeze the wrong word but it's kind of like that i think it's kind of mannered is it the wrong word i don't know if it's the wrong word tweeze is a good word for it yeah i just think this movie earns it a little bit more like i think what people think this movie in terms of like being twee is is more like he's just making direct homages to like certain kinds of filmmaking uh and i think i think they work um but I don't know. I think I think there's just something about this movie that is unabashedly delightful. Uh, I think everybody involved is really good, especially. I mean, I know we're not we're not using this to talk about Brody. Um, I don't think you know he's of the three leads, right? Of him, Ruffalo, uh, and Weiss, and then you know the fourth lead being you know to a slightly lesser degree, uh, Rinko Kikuchi. He's the worst of the four, but not, he's not bad. And I think when you think about it in the context of his broader career, it, it weirdly is a bright spot, right? It's like this, he gives like, a yeah, I don't know what the deal is with Brody. He kind of, he basically decided to go action, right? Uh, yeah. not too long after this movie, he made predators, which I, I opened think like the year after. Right? Yeah. It like, opened yeah. kind of somewhat famously, infamously opened really well. And then has one of the biggest, um, second weekend, percentage drops in the history of like cinema uh you know in in box office you know receipts uh gathering um so he kind of never really came back from that um and you know now kind of makes a bunch of different things um at varying levels of vod and theatrical release and whatnot so yeah an interesting kind of I don't know that anyone would have thought this was going to be kind of the end of Adrian Brody indie movie star, but it kind of is. Yeah. I don't even sure. know he, that he's the weakest link in this, but I, I really like him in this movie. I think. No, I think he's, I'm saying he, I think of the four leads, he's still good. It's just, I think Ruffalo and especially, I mean, I think this is a Rachel Weiss movie. Yeah, Vice is, is, is yeah. the MVP, I think. You yeah. know, and, and then Kikuchi as well. I think the women are, uh, are really crushing it. I think Ruffalo's great in it um 
And I think Brody is too, but I think Vice is on another level. She's so tuned into this movie. I mean, everybody is, but she's so tuned into this movie. And Ruffalo is too in the sense of like he, his character is a guy who's having fun and he's clearly just having so much fun, right? This is also, I mean, you know, it's not like he's, this is pre-MCU for him. So it's not yeah. like he's this. It's not like he, this is a respite where he can let loose. It's just he hasn't, you know, he hasn't dialed into Bruce Banner yet. He, yeah, I don't know. He's just so charming. He's so charming, and like, it's the whole, you know, they're they're basically they're two gentlemen thieves. They're con artists. Uh, they have been since youth. Basically, the movie opens with them kind of perpetrating their some, first some great narration from the late Ricky Jay. Yeah, he's great. He's awesome. Great. And it's yeah, and it's like a nice, it's a nice little James Joycey kind of piece of prose that he narrates, right? And everything, you know, everything's in rhyming sets and all. Well, that. and you say James Joyce because their name is Bloom, and uh, it's there are a few different references. Yeah, there's Stephen is who's which? Uh, remind me which one's Stephen? Stephen is Ruffalo. Yeah, so and you then, have these and, kind yeah. of you know these Joyce yeah. references, and yeah. my one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is. When Rachel, they're on, they're on a boat, and Rachel Vice goes, "Oh, your name's Melville." Right, right. No, sorry, because um, I noticed before, but I couldn't place it. This ship is called the Fidel, which is um, the name of the ship in Melville's novel, The Confidence Man. So that's weird. I, I had never read that. Ruffalo in this, he, a lot of what he's doing, especially in the earlier part of the movie, is because is reacting to, to Rachel Weiss because he that she is their mark, right? And she is essentially this eccentric, very wealthy heiress who was a shut-in for most of her life, and they're basically taking advantage of that. And Adrian Brody falls in love with her while Ruffalo is still trying to perpetrate this con. Rinka Kikuchi's kind of there, just like all, like all around sort of helper with all of it in terms of like the, her name is Bang Bang, and she deals with a lot of like the pyrotechnics and explosives and grander effects that they use to pull off some of their schemes. And basically, the whole thing here is you know they've been at it for a while. Brody's really tired of it, and he you know he mentions to Ruffalo like I want I want like a real thing right, and um. And he's just tired of like pretending to be other people and all that stuff. So that's kind of what tees all this up. And then they, you know, to rope Brody back in so he doesn't quit. Uh, Ruffalo says, hey, let's just do one last one. We, we've got this woman, this rich woman, um, and we're going to just con her out of all her money. And that's kind of how the movie takes off. And they they basically take advantage of her by promising her right. this adventure, right? Because she was a shut in for all of her life. And also and, her name, just to bring it, her name's Penelope, which is another Ulysses reference. Yeah, it's it's packed with that stuff. It's got Melville references in it. Um, it's got Kipling references in it. So it's a very like you know, I mean, I don't know, Ryan Johnson's a smart guy. It's not. I think a, one of the things people don't like about this movie is that all those references are just so right there in your face. So I get how that can be like a little laborious, but. Um, it's cute and not to me, not in a negative way. I just think it's a cute, it's a cute, nice movie. But he, what Ruffalo spends a lot of his time doing is reacting to like how deceptively smart Rachel Weiss is, right? Even despite her earnestness and her potential aloofness and all that, as they're trying to pull one over on her, 
you mentioned the the thing with the the Fidel and she gets the Melville reference. Um, and then there's another great moment where they're playing shuffleboard on the deck of this of that ship. And uh, and he introduces Rico Kikuchi, but he gives her, a, you know, a pseudonym. And this is my personal assistant. Yeah! And private masseuse, Mrs. Yingling. Yingling like the beer. <laughs> no. And it's like this great, you know, he constantly has to play off that he's like been one-upped by her, basically. And it's a nice little dynamic that kind of plays its way through the movie. He, I think he works, you know, it's kind of funny to see in the context of the MCU, you you never really get to see his that much of his range. I think he's really good as yes Bruce and Banner. no. I, yeah, I mean he does a lot with Banner in a way that I never fully. I mean I agree with people. You know I think the Hulk is a character, and I think I mentioned this briefly on the uh, the first podcast. Though I've always struggled a little bit with the Hulk as a character because, um, you know, in the solo movies, though the the Ang Lee um. Hulk has grown on me. You know, he's a hard character to crack, I think. And I think you've dealt with that. You've seen that. You've seen that kind of come come to life in one way or another creatively. But he does a lot in these ensemble pictures. Um, and it speaks to his um it speaks to his ability to play so many different types of characters. And, you know, to your point, when you think about Brothers Bloom, he's basically this kind of charming you know, near do well. He's sort of like a Tony Stark. Kind right. Who's kind of like conning a, yeah. his own brother and him conning himself in a way. And when you think about this role and then you think about his breakout role, you can count on me, which it was him and Laura Linney, who we mentioned yeah. uh, in the last podcast in the, from the nanny diaries. It is such an unbelievably different performance. There's so many different things happening and Ruffalo can do, you know, he can operate, at those ends, he can operate in the middle. You know, he can be charming in a more of a kind of kind way um, in a movie like uh, Just Like Heaven, which is a resource. Or even, I mean, even like Shutter, Shutter Island. Shutter Island, which, yeah. you know, he's doing a lot in that movie. When You know, if you get through to the end of that movie, you know, um, what you know, there's a lot happening there. And, you know, for better or worse, I that, that movie's grown on me over time. So, uh, you know, I, I, I ride with that one. But... um yeah, he is one of those actors. There aren't that many like him who can really he never I feel like he never disappears and that's not a dig, but he also always becomes those people. And I think this is a great example of he might not have been the first immediate first thinking of casting when you think about Stephen Bloom and yet to watch him play this role, it feels like no one else could have done it. So yeah, it's just, I guess that's what I mean why like like it, it's tough cuz I don't want to undersell him and to your point he doesn't really disappear in it but he he's just having so much fun and it's so nice to see him. And I granted I think that's almost that's the way I feel almost anytime I see Mark Ruffalo. It's like just nice to see him. I don't know. It's like he's just he's there's a comfort there I think even when he's playing a little bit of uh like you said a near do well like in something like this, right? And I think, you know, there's a level in this performance, too, of of both of those things, of him being kind of a scalawag, but also, you know, he does care for his brother. And he does, there is that gentility that's, like, right underneath the surface 
uh, that plays out, I think, and I, I won't spoil too much of the movie. I would seek, I would, I would tell anybody who hasn't seen it to seek it out. Um, it's a fun movie. It's really interesting. I actually, for one, will say, in terms of Ryan Johnson's filmography, it's my favorite movie of his. I do, uh, I do like The Last Jedi a lot, but uh, I do, I like this movie more. And it does make me excited to see what Knives Out is going to be like, because that movie, it would seem, is going to be kind of an Agatha Christie-ish. And we have another uh, Avenger in Knives Out in Chris Evans, which is nice. Oh, right. That's right. So there you go. You have Captain America and uh, Last Jedi cooking up last jedi for my money the best star wars movie that's been made so far i know that's you know i don't i'm not i would, I'm not, I would agree yeah you know, i'm not agree. trying people, to say people that's are gonna stop listening feathers. in no, three I mean, two one. i you know you know my qualifier not to go down this rabbit hole my qualifier with that it tends to be uh though i did i though i do love the star wars movies in that nostalgic way and grew up with them i was a, always a uh, indie Indiana Jones first uh, type of kid, so sure. I never had the kinship, I suppose, that many others have to those originals. So that perhaps speaks to some of my Last Jedi love, just in thinking about some of the criticism, I suppose. You know, not to give too much uh, weight to that, but um, yeah, I mean, I think Ryan Johnson hasn't made a movie I've disliked. I think Brick, like I said, I have to give that another look, um, but. You know, Looper, I really enjoy, and I can't wait for Knives Out. I really, I think Knives Out's going to be something to, you know, even if it all goes wrong, right? Which, you know, who knows? It'll be so fun to see all those actors playing dress up and quipping against each other, and I, I cannot wait for it. That's kind of what I mean, and I, that's how I feel when I watch this movie, is it's just like, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of production design in this movie. There's a lot, you know, it's got this thing where it kind of, it doesn't, it's, there there are you know anachronisms and it sort of just evokes this like just you know nice literarily tinged sort of atmosphere um and he creates kind of this 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 world you know they they hop all over the place and they i guess people basically kind of you know they roll their eyes at the things like just like oh she's going to specifically wear this bright green sweater and like they're going to dress very particularly yeah I, I think that rubs people the wrong way, but yeah. to me, I don't know. It's just fun. It's like fun to just watch I, good actors show up and I, dress nice. I basically agree with you. I, I really enjoy this movie. I think, you know, in rewatching it a couple of times over the years, where I start to lose the thread is as it gets towards the end, where I just feel like it sure. runs out of story, literally. And then yeah. it just kind of it doesn't have the ending you would want, right? Like I think about a movie like The Grifters, right? Or something like yeah. that, where mm-hmm. the ending's kind of punching in the face or something like Matchstick Men, which I really enjoy. Right. You know, con movies, obviously, what's tough about them, and, and truly I can't even, I mean, you know, I try to write these things and I, you know, thinking about a con movie, writing a con movie is its own like math problem. I feel like I can't fully solve, but like- right. You know, I think it's so uh, magnificent to even be able to do that. So, you know, but to make one, you know, the idea of a con movie is, you know, you're setting up a con and then while the con's going on, you're setting up another con, you know, for the audience, essentially. And for, right, right. And to some degree, the, the characters who are, you know, doing the conning, right? So that layered thing, I think at some point the Brothers Bloom doesn't fully deliver on, but that's 
ultimately for the enjoyment you get out of it, a relatively small criticism. So yeah, I and think, I think Ruffalo I, it does speak, like we said, it speaks to the guy's range. He's yeah, just an, an incredible so. actor. Because I think where I would agree with you. I mean, that's the one criticism of the movie I definitely agree with people on. Because like when I saw it, even for the first time, you do get to a place, particularly you know the not again not to give too much away, but. As they go on, they get involved, like their old mentor, who's played by Maximilian Schell, uh, who actually is pretty good. He shows up for like two seconds. Robbie Coltrane also shows up in this movie, uh, and he's pretty funny. Um, but um, but basically, their old mentor and like the Russian mob loosely gets involved. And it does get a little convoluted, but I almost feel like it's intentional because the movie makes kind of a big thing about how elaborate and like showboaty um, Mark Ruffalo constructs his, his cons and stuff. So it does keep you in this thing of like, which part of this is real, which part isn't. And it drags it right to the very end. And I will say while the movie, I think takes a little too long to get to where it goes. I think where it lands is, is pretty good. And I think Ruffalo has a scene right, right at the very end of the movie that is, is great um and yeah i don't know i think i think i think it's worth it when you get there but i i will agree that i do think you know the movie could probably be movies basically two hours it could probably be about 15 minutes shorter probably absolutely Um, wonderful score by nathan johnson ryan johnson's brother yeah who also scored actually not as good of a score but also scored kill the messenger which we'll talk about um but yeah i did not know that that is i only I I I don't actually I didn't even look it up. I don't know if it's the same Nathan Johnson. I just saw his name in the credits and I was like, "Oh shit, Nathan Johnson." I I will confirm that. But um but yeah, no, the score I do think I would encourage anybody to just listen to. I do think it's I mean personally, it's one of my all-time favorite scores. It's um, it's an amazing score. Using uh if I guess if we could confirm yeah, I'm confirming it right now. I'm looking. I'm looking. Let's see. Composer. Kill the Messenger. There it is. Yes, sir. Okay. Same guy. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, using using Mr. Johnson as a segue, he did the score for uh, you know, a not as good score for a not as good movie, Kill the Messenger. Um, yeah. You want to you wanna, I'll you jump wanna in. lean into this yeah, one? Yeah, I'll jump in. Yeah. So, this is kind of interesting. I mean, this is a story that uh that that interests me quite a bit um all right so kill the messenger is about uh, a journalist named gary webb now jeremy renner uh who is hawkeye in the avengers movies the mcu movies um an interesting actor the most relevant avenger right like the (laughs) most important avenger yeah an interesting uh an interesting actor i'm saying interesting a lot but i'll say this Kill the Messenger, he's the lead. He plays Gary Webb. Gary Webb in the 90s was an investigative journalist. He worked for the San Jose Mercury News, and he basically, through a couple different avenues, um, began connecting crack cocaine being sold in cities like Compton, right, like South Central um, in L.A. and obviously all over the country. Uh, you know, the crack cocaine epidemic, he connected the sale of these drugs to weapon sales, right? He basically connected the the drug sales uh, that led to crack cocaine in cities in the United States to 
arms sales for rebels in Nicaragua, right? Which that goes back to the 80s and Reagan and then went into the 90s and whatnot. And he connected the CIA as being complicit um, in the that connection, right? And this, you know, when you say these things, uh, movie I think of is American Made, of course, which is a Doug Liman movie from a couple years ago. Tom Cruise plays Barry Seal, kind of a similar subject matter. Um, he, Barry Seal was a pilot who claimed uh, to deliver drugs and weapons and money and everything to rebels in Central America uh, on behalf of the U.S. government. So this was a journalist, Gary Webb, basically making claims, uh, had sources. They, you know, and, and the sources were drug dealers. They were, uh, you know, people involved with the cartels. Um, and ultimately, he never really had a CIA source, though he had documentation uh, that connected different points. So it's this kind of conspiratorial thing that was, you know, printed as fact in a newspaper. And then the mainstream media really took Gary Webb to task with his claims, with his stories, and ultimately his paper kind of disavowed it, uh, basically apologized for it. Gary Webb resigned in some some disgrace uh, at the time, wrote a book called Dark Alliance, which was the name of his series of articles. Um, you know, did the media circuit basic kind of got vindicated in 1998 when uh, an investigative report, you know, that the government government commissioned came out and kind of, you know, uh, validated a lot of what he was, uh, you know, writing about. So kind of an interesting turn there. And there was it's a weird story because you have this mainstream media threw him under the bus and criticized his journalism and his ethics. And then now you look back and it feels like he was kind of right, which obviously, you know, you say allegedly, I suppose there, but kill the messenger definitely believes he's right, which is, sure. is, is, is probably a problem with the movie and something I struggled with, though I do find Gary Webb and all that he wrote about very interesting, the movie is kind of canonizing him, and you know, I, you know I as I as I understand, this was a passion project for Jeremy Renner. It was a movie directed by Michael Cuesta, who's a showrunner. He gave us Heartland. He gave us, I believe, Twenty Four, um, Homeland. Oh, what did I say? Heartland, Homeland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, people in the Heartland, I think, really like Homeland <laughs> and Twenty Four. Entirely possible. Yeah. But um, anyway, you know, this is a guy who, you know. TV is a big part of his bread and butter, but has made a few films. Uh, another film, actually, with um, with Jeremy Renner called 12 and Holding. Uh, and yeah, it's it's capably put together. Uh, it, the script's from Peter Landisman, who writes a lot of scripts like this. He, he wrote and directed a movie called Parkland, which is basically kind of a crash version of the JFK assassination. He directed and wrote a movie called Concussion, which was a Will Smith Oscar vehicle where... Will Smith played uh, Bennett Amalo, who is the doctor, Nigerian doctor, who basically took the NFL to task for what we now know as CTE and concussions and, you know, the way that our NFL players are being, you know, brutalized and dealing with head trauma for the rest of their lives. Um, so this guy, Landisman, you know, he writes topical screenplays. He wrote the Mark Felt movie. Kill the Messenger is, for as interesting as the story is, it's not that engaging. 
you know, yeah. which is sort of a, it's weird. I, it's, it's, I think part of, and this, I hate to say this and let's, let's use this as a jumping off point for Renner yeah. as a leading man. For me, I think a big part of it is Renner. I just, he's, he's not in that role as this kind of true journalist, right? Which is how this movie is painting Gary Webb. Um, sure. You know, very kind of without many wrinkles. You know, you know, he's got some dark darkness in his past, and the movie definitely alludes to it. But but there's way more the movie could have done that they choose not to do. And it's one of those things where Renner is a complex actor. He's got an interesting look. But if he's playing altruism, it just doesn't work for me. He just doesn't. He's too complicated. He doesn't have the... And this is feels like a dig, but he doesn't have the kindness in his eyes. Like there's always yeah. another thing happening. We you know we talked about RDJ in the the uh, episode before. RDJ Wouldn't can kind of just crushed it. In well, this movie? But, well, RDJ can play in in those two pools and connect them, and I don't know that Renner can. You know what I mean? I think you know Renner as a battle worn you know, uh, bow and arrow hitman. Hell yeah. You know, as a, as a, as a born adjacent spy, you know, dealing with a fucking pill addiction. Hell yeah. You know, as a heist, you know, as a towny insane fucking crazy man who's Ben Affleck's best friend. Hell yeah. And, you know, and probably still his best performance in Hurt Locker, you know, there's no one better. And, you know, rewatches, uh, of that movie have confirmed that how how good uh, Jeremy Renner is in Hurt Locker. This is just this just doesn't fit. I just doesn't seem to fit for me. I I think a big part of it too is all of those mo- all the things I like Jeremy Renner in, and I'm not yeah I like like I don't know the guy. I'm not going to speak to him personally, but I mean you t- that's my boy. You're talking about my boy Jeremy. Me and him go way back, so you know. Oh, he's right. There. He's right there. Yeah, he's I'm, here. I'm he's looking, he's, he's yeah, sitting he's right next there. to me. What's up? What yeah. up, Jared? Hey, cool. Hey, what's love up? Hey, tag. Connor. Love tag, bro. Hey, hey, How are your arms? You know what? He's kind of good in tag. You know, he's kind of <laughs> good in tag. But hang on. So here's the thing, though. I think Jeremy Renner needs to be a little unlikable in order to succeed, right? Like on screen. Yeah, I, I think, think. I think he's at the. I think he's at a Tom Cruise point before Tom Cruise got there, and we talk about this a lot. Like. Cruz is unlikable now, generally, and he has to kind of play against that to make the roles work. I think yeah. Renner's, and you know, ironically, obviously, they're both in Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation, and for a moment, Jeremy Renner was going to basically take over Tom Cruise's role um, in the future Mission Impossible movies, which is, of course, now no longer uh, the case, but... They both now, I mean, Tom Cruise, I think once was a sex symbol and likable, but they're both now working that same world of like making intensity and insanity and maybe a little unlikability work in your favor. Because even yeah, in Tag, yeah, yeah. which is a fun movie, it's a comedy, he's crazy. Like the joke in the movie is he's insane, right? So that works for Renner because he can do these crazy stunts and what have you. And the rest of the men and Isla Fisher in the movie and uh, Leslie Bibb can kind of, the the soft heart of it all, they can kind of dig into. But even as yeah. I say that, Jeremy Renner plays a scene against Ed Helms kind of nicely at the end. So, you know, I, well, I guess my there. point is, I, I think there's something about Jeremy Renner actor that automatically comes off as a little unlikable. And so I think when he, like when he's in like the mission movies and he's, you know, sort of just the suit, right. Who is sort of, you know, like always kind of looking out for like 
maybe keeping the team in check. You know what I mean? Like, even when you know he's on your side, there's like a level of like, he's the one who's going to kind of maybe throw something back at you. There's an inherent sort of uh, unlikability there, even if you do like him, that 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 I think he kind of can, tur- you know, he can turn into that spin and make it work. Um, a Hurt Locker, same thing. You can be like, this dude is crazy, right? Like, this dude is kind of an asshole, but like also fascinating, right? And I think uh, with this, to your point, Dan, even though they try and put kind of the demons in his past or whatever, he's so, like, seemingly, at least personally, even if his wife, played by Rosemary DeWitt, who I think is pretty good in this movie. Yeah, uh, she kind of never gets enough credit. I think she's great. She's great in basically everything. I love her. She's a really Um, good actress. Yeah, she she never gets enough play. She was Rachel, uh, who got married. She was Rachel. Let yeah, let us never true. forget. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. She you know, she's cl- she clearly is dealing with his his sort of uh darker secrets in his past. But he feels so over them, you know, there's like this weird self-righteous. I think that's what it is. There's this weird yeah. self-righteousness to the way he plays well, Gary Webb. And I think, you know, and look, a I, little tough to swallow. I was telling you before we recorded. Um I kind of went down in Gary Webb rabbit hole yeah. after watching this movie did you go to the dark um, web I, I joined the dark alliance and i um not the dark universe not the dark universe but the dark alliance no. and no. i um i read a lot about web i you know i read excerpts from the book some articles some of the dark alliance articles a couple of interviews with him and i will say it's funny that you just said the word self-righteous because Gary Webb in those interviews does come off a bit self-righteous. So that's an interesting kind of a connection. So maybe Renner in playing this guy that he obviously, you know, would, would appear to have a lot of respect for. Yeah. Maybe played I, him a little too close. You know, if you're really trying to make him out to be a hero, which maybe, you know, he very well could have been, you know, and if that's the the lane you're driving down, yeah, playing him self-righteous is an interesting choice potentially. You know, I, I'll say one thing. Uh, a cardinal sin this movie commits in my eyes is you have Barry Pepper in your movie. Give me a little for, bit more pepper. Give me a little bit 40, more pepper. Yeah, for fuck it. I need it spicier. I need more pepper. Give you me just more give pepper. Him, you give him, you have a lot, there's a, a few things like that. Like Tim Blake Nelson shows up for like two scenes. Andy He's Garcia good, I think. shows up for a, two, yeah, for a cup Andy, of coffee. Andy, buddy. Yeah. Andy Garcia in, in an early version of what is his role in the mule, basically. Oh. Um, and And yeah, I just... I wanted more from it, though I thank Michael Cuesta and Jeremy Renner for reminding me, essentially, of Gary Webb and kind of allowing me to read a lot of that work, because it is, I mean, I would almost tell people, watch the movie if, you, if you're if you curious, it's on Netflix yeah. currently, but I almost go, go around the movie and read about Gary Webb and read his writing and read the writing about his writing and the counter to his writing. It's the whole thing's kind of fascinating, a little tragic, right? The corruption, obviously inherent. One thing I know we talked about before the pod. Um, it's a little sad how the corruption feels so secondary. Yeah, I watch it and you kind of go, yeah, this makes sense. You know? Yeah. Like I, that's the thing is like, and, and this is not obviously not the movie's fault. Right. But like it's a 2014 movie. You watch it in 2019. Five short years later, and, you're like, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, sure. Kill the messenger. Right. Yeah, go ahead and kill the messenger. Go right. ahead. Right. You're kind of him. like, you're kind of like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, the CIA is responsible for all the the drugs that come into the country and, and, and just they target black areas and stuff. And right. it's like, you're like, like, you are like, yeah, that's horrible. 
But then you're also kind of like, yeah, I don't know, man. The government is terrible. Ah, I don't know. Like, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. it's a weird kind well, of. Well, I think you know we bring we brought up American Made before. I think you know the tone of American Made is way more cynical, and I think you know yeah, if you can yes. roll with the tone, it fits way more with the current state of affairs. So I think yeah. You know, exactly. you know, you may watch American Made and hate it more for that, right? You could feel like it's flippant. But for me, I did enjoy that kind of sardonic tone because it just fit my, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm literally making myself sad saying this, but it fit my more sardonic worldview watching it, right? So the entertainment yeah. value felt more there, um, which, you know, maybe that's something, you know, you can't really do that with this story because there is this man at the heart of it, who ultimately was, was, you know, whether or not all of the reporting was, you know, completely kosher or whatnot, he was trying for something, you know, true and honest. And I think, you know, the, you know, you know, uh, I'll spoil the Gary Webb story. Uh, so, you know, skip ahead 10 seconds if you don't want to know this, but sadly in real life, Gary Webb in 2004 committed suicide, which what's of course weird about his suicide is he shot himself in the head twice, which the movie definitely at the end makes a point of. It's weird that that yeah. happened, and obviously this is a guy who ruffled a lot of uh, you know feathers, and you know it's a little weird they don't include that in the movie. I thought. I think it's hard I, I because know. you have to make a choice there. Like you know when you're talking about Barry Seal, right? He was assassinated, right? So you can kind of dig into that, but clearly right. this movie and Michael Cuesta and those who made it. I maybe don't think this guy killed himself. <laughs> so, you know, there's right. definitely, they're definitely kind of alluding to the fact that, the, you know, you know, it was ruled a suicide, right? Like being shot in the head twice feels a little strange. So I guess that's my point. It feels like they don't feel that way. Right. So like, like it feels like they feel like he didn't commit suicide. So why not do like a flash forward where yeah. he's dead and they find him with two bullet holes in their head and then like they do like a Hollywood, or- like more like a Hollywood land thing. Yeah, kind of, pick, kind of, maybe pick both. You know, like have your cake both and eat it too, it, yeah. a little bit. But I like, think the movie's tone is too true blue, though, right? I think it yeah, kind of, it's, it's probably it's, true. that's the problem. That's it's like true. you're dealing with the corruption, but then the guy at the heart of it is meant to be, you know, a Woodward, right? So you, you, you get I, into that nitty gritty. And so. you know what? The other thing, and Renner, Renner had said this. I don't know if there's like an actual interview where he said. I just was reading about that. You know, as as I was watching it, how you know, with Watergate, there was Ben Bradley, right? And and somebody like Gary Webb did not have a Ben Bradley. And I, you have to wonder, like, the bummer is, like, I think Oliver Platt is pretty good in this movie. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead's really good in this movie, right. too. It's, it's just that, like, I think this movie puts so many chips in the Gary Webb basket. Well, no, and also, doesn't... and also, and this is where I where I would say you're right. The movie, it's interesting that Renner would say something like that because he might not. But Gary Webb in real life might have not had a Ben Bradley, but you know what? He also didn't have. He didn't have like sources within the White House and within the, right. you know, he really didn't. that, And the movie does an okay job of establishing that. Like, he really never had a solid CIA source. And that I was mean, a they problem. they do the quick, they do the, the Ray quick bad. Ray Liotta that scene, which is, is bad. That, that's a bad scene. That's a, I, You have to even and wonder. And it's a hedge. It's a hedge yeah. that's Ugh. really like, 
it, it's, Ray Liotta basically shows up for those listening. He basically like shows a, up to as play Deep Throat, to right? Be like deep not, throat, right? not I as don't even Bart, know how Mark real felt, or not but it is. Yeah, like but he, it's just it's so badly. It, it it shoehorns in in such a bad way. Yeah, I, I, it's it's not good. I it mean, feels like Riliota was like being whispered his lines off screen. It's right. just uh, not. He not sat strong. there and he's like, "Oh, you're Riliota," and he's like, "Yeah, well, I come here. Normally, I'm a tough guy, but I want to talk to you about chance." Yeah, exactly. That I kept <laughs> um, waiting for. Be like, "Hey, look, fucking- I did work for the CIA, and also." I love Chantix, and all my life I wanted to be a gangster. Basically, he's in Renner's motel room, and Renner wakes up because he hears him chewing Chantix in the corner. Um, He's just just literally going, Chantix, Chantix, Chantix. (laughs) What are you doing? What are you doing, right? I'm Chantix. Anyway, sorry. Um, All right, so- No, but- uh, yeah, final final well, uh, killer. Yeah, final thoughts. I mean, I just i i don't i don't think this movie's bad per se. Mm-hmm. I just it feels like a it feels like what it is, which is a passion project. And I feel like what happens with a lot of passion projects is that the people who want to get them made get so buried into getting them made, yeah, that when it finally happens. They're barreling. They're like not spending enough time on actually working the idea yeah. through, and I, like really y- like. Yeah, and so I, I, what, that is exactly how I feel about this. What comes out is this, which is like it's not bad, and like I don't know if if to your point, Dan, if you're interested in it, I would probably recommend you go just see, search the other stuff out. But if you want to watch this movie, it's fine. It's fine. It's just like there's clearly a better version. Yeah, it's of this a C movie plus somewhere. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's just know. It's, you know, it's it's a solid single off. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, single up the fine. middle. You know, um, yeah, it's. Uh yeah I don't know I mean Renner's fine whatever we're, we're I struggle uh, with I struggle with Renner in the movie I I I, I yeah. give him some of that some of that some of that C some For of sure. that C of the C plus uh, is is Renner all right For now sure. look this movie our final movie speaking of C's oh, there he is um I was very excited for this movie. I was too. Uh, I think you and I both. Relief. I mean, we were we were jacked. I don't know. We were like, yeah. So the movie's uh, in the heart of the sea. Yep. It's directed by Ron Howard. Um, mm-hmm. It Ron- stars Ronathan Howard. Ronathan yep. Howard. It stars uh, Chris Hemsworth. Now he made this post Thor. Like he is Thor. He's movie star Chris Hemsworth. MCU Chris Chris Hemsworth at this point. It's 2015, and this movie is basically based on a book. And it's about, you know, by all accounts, the real life Moby Dick. I mean, that's kind of what the movie is in the heart of the sea. And Hemsworth is the captain of the ship. And he's got, there's a bunch of amazing he's actors in He's got a great, great name. Great name. Hit us, hit us with o- the name. Owen Chase. Owen Chase. Yeah. Uh, you got, you got uh, pre-Spider-Man Tom Holland in this movie. Yeah, little boy, little boy, little um, tiny little boy. Ronnie Howard is working with Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who um, I think in a lot of ways kind of revitalized uh, Ron Howard's visual sensibilities. Uh, Dodd-Mantle also worked on Rush, which was a movie also starring Chris Hemsworth um, about IndyCar racing. That's great. Uh, Daniel Bruhl's in that movie. Olivia Wilde's yeah. in that movie. I would recommend Stop What You're Doing Right Now and go watch Rush. It's, it's exciting. It's interesting. It's probably still Chris Hemsworth's best performance, maybe? He's great. Yeah, he's great. I mean, there's a lot to like about that movie. Um, Daniel Bruhl is incredible, I think, actually, in that movie. Yeah, I think also when it was going around, like, you know, the movie didn't really get, like, awards love. I 
I don't want to speak too soon. I think Brule got nominated. I think Brule got nominated. Globe. I'll check, but for like a Golden Globe or something like that. But um, yeah, Rush is really great. Rush is really great. I mean, it's I guess it came out only two years before this movie, before yeah. Heart of the Sea. And is Rush technically a B side? Like it wasn't a hit, was it? No, I mean this. Is, yeah, Rush is a B side, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we'll yeah, I, I, we'll we'll, yeah, we'll take no, a quick pit stop into Rush because yeah, no Oscar nominations though. You know, Golden Globes, Brule got a little bit of love, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, so and, you know, Rush is basically Formula One racers, James Hunt and Nikki Lauda. Um, written by Peter Morgan, great British writer who gave us, you know, movies like The Queen, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, Frost Nixon. And this is basically, James Hunt was a cocksure driver who has a rivalry with Nicky Lauda. And then Nicky Lauda in this race in which he's kind of uh, tit for tatting with James Hunt, Nicky Lauda gets in this horrific, horrific um, uh, accident and crash you know car crash and the movie becomes about you know that the humbling that comes uh uh comes from that with james hunt and you know nikki lauda's ultimate redemption and recovery and um yeah it's just really well done it's 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 kind yeah, of exactly the type of movie ron howard makes really well you know you think about apollo 13 yeah you know you think about you know uh those types of movies you know beautiful mind to a lesser degree i suppose but it's definitely something Ron Howard can do really well. And I think that's kind of what I was expecting within the heart of the sea. And it's just, it's just not there. It's a very stagnant movie. Yeah. Um, Hemsworth's not great. It almost feels like he wasn't prepared for it. There's Um, uh, the construct of the narrative is like very confusing and doesn't make like, isn't necessary. Right. It's like a, it's a bookend. They lean, and it's... yeah. They lean on. So basically, it's a, it's a, I, it's a Paddington Two reunion, or I should say, Paddington Two is a in the heart of the sea reunion, right? Because it basically is bookended with Ben Wishaw plays Herman Melville, and um, and Brendan Gleeson um, plays the older version of Tom Holland's character. And he basically, you know, he's heard about this story of the ship, the Essex, which was shipwrecked by a large white whale and uh, and nobody basically believed them kind of thing. And so Herman Melville wanted wants to use it for the basis of the as yet written Moby Dick. And, he, and the only living person is Brennan Gleason. So he shows up and Brennan Gleason doesn't want to talk about it. And you don't really know specifically why yet. He's just sort of traumatized by it. And it's, I mean, it's a fine setup, I guess, but what's weird is when the movie finishes out, it doesn't put, it doesn't stick its landing on the story of the Essex. It sticks its landing on, and then Herman Herman Melville finally wrote Moby Dick, which was called by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the great American epic. And it's like, wait, am I, am I supposed to care about that? Like, I just watched a completely different movie, right? And it's I don't know. It's very strange. It's a very strangely structured movie. Hemsworth, to your point, not good. There's I don't know, and I'd be curious to see. I mean, honestly, anybody at me just to let me know. Like the his accent here is some combination of like it starts as a British accent, then he like starts peppering like contemporary Boston, and it's this 
uh, I don't know. It's this really fucking weird, like, just chimera of uh, of accents, and it's horrible. It's truly horrible. Mr. Mason, you, you promised me command of a ship after my last voyage when I brought you back 1,500 barrels. Do you remember? You gave me a word. Yeah, like I said, it feels like he's not ready yeah. for it. It feels like, you know, like, you know, the actor did not have enough time to prepare. Yeah, I mean, that's I just, literally what it feels it like. It came out of his mouth and it just right. it, it came out of his mouth. And I just I forgot because I'd seen this movie before and rewatched yeah. it for this. And I was rewatching it with my girlfriend and it came out of his mouth. And her reaction like, was, oh, just, no. was just was yeah. just what? Like, what did you just say? Like, not even that voice is terrible, I mean, but like... this it's an interesting moment for Hemsworth, right? Because, as we mentioned in the first episode, dude's a funny guy. And I think he's learning, you know, he 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 will learn this around this time and, and really lean into it. And then you have your Ragnarok and your, you know, kind of, uh, you know, your upcoming Men in Black movie, where I think, like, the goofball sensibility is going to really work for him. This is his movie star play. This is his I'm Thor, what else can I do play? And I think it works in Rush, though nobody really saw Rush. It's a great performance. And this is just maybe the Icarus too close to the sun situation for Chris Hemsworth. But also Howard, too. Like, Ron Howard can direct any type of movie, right? Yeah, like he's a very valuable filmmaker. Yeah, Parenthood is really, you know, you know, it's a family drama with a little bit of comedy with some great, you know, Steve Martin and Tom Hulse and a lot, you know, Martha Plimpton and a lot of good actors in it. You know, whereas Apollo 13 is an is a NASA space epic and uh, you know Solo for all of its problems is a capable Star Wars thriller, right? So like he can do plenty and here he really looks lost. And I think part of the problem is the story itself because you have all these different things. Like like you said, Connor, if the story is basically this is Moby Dick, but the real Moby Dick, that's not what this movie is, right? The movie is basically like this is Moby Dick and also it's 127 hours and also right. it's alive and also, you know, yeah. there's – you know, there's cannibalism there, you know, there's survival tactics. There's, and it's not, you know, it's the greenest movie that's oh ever God, been yeah. made. I mean, you know, when, you know, Anthony Dunmantle, who is a very, you know, truly vision, visionary digital cinematographer, you know, did things like Slumdog Millionaire and you, know, like we said, did Rush and, and whatnot and is, is very talented. This literally feels like nobody told him no. And, and the result is just, this Instagram filter of a movie yeah, kind yeah, of exactly and- like it feels like um I mean I don't because I don't mind the green oversaturation like I especially when you take into account like um the idea of like flashes of green light and stuff like that with you know seafaring myths and and, and things like that uh I think it's and I'm sure I don't know this for a fact but I'm sure that must have been part of the conversation or, or at least part of the thought process in Anthony Dodd head when he was like putting some of these images together but and it and it does definitely look pretty or interesting in certain parts, but other parts just look and I don't know if it's Howard's direction and like the CG pods of whales and stuff like that. Like when they're getting into the whaling, it looks bad, man. It looks bad. Like there's not good. There are shots of the dragons on Game of Thrones that look better. Like, do you know what I mean? And it's like insane. Well, and this is where you run into the problem with, you know, 
with digital to some degree where it's like you're working in a space where you can do a lot and you can cheat and you can, you know, fuck around and, you know, get, like you're saying, get some beautiful frames. But then when you get into like builds, right. And like, you know, we're working in a green screen space, you know, renderings that are rough play way worse. Yeah. And I think, you know, yeah. Game of Thrones is an interesting kind of comparison when you think about kind of some of those rougher, special effects moments um you know the problem of course being in the heart of the sea does not have this built-in narrative and these built-in characters that are going to push you through right exactly like when the action is the whaling and the whaling hemsworth is a cipher hemsworth is a cipher can i say owen chase is uh, what is his you know he's got what is he got like a wife he's basically he's 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 from like a lower class right yeah he's from like a lower class he gets this is a big opportunity. Yeah, because he for get, him. and he sort of he feels a little kind of cast aside because he shows up. They're actually speaking of Game of Thrones. They're like four Game of Thrones actors in this movie, um, but um, he shows up and thinks he's going to get the captain position on the Essex, and instead is given first mate. And he's like, "All right, fine." And basically, uh, through nepotism, George Pol- George Pollard gets the uh gets the helm essentially and they essentially tell Hemsworth like look this is your chance to prove yourself he's a new captain we got to give it to him cuz of who his family is basically yeah and Pollard and, is played by Benjamin Walker yeah. who is uh Abraham Lincoln uh of course I mean who could forget he was the vampire hunter oh indeed famous for the vampire hunter I mean yeah. famously the the Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter yeah, yeah and so they, there's like a little bit there I will say I don't think you know if you can stomach if you can stomach some of the worst uh CG compositions uh in this movie you know and I think part of it comes from like like you said you and I were really excited for this movie I've now watched this movie twice knowing that it's not very good going into it. Right. And each time I want to like it, like I want, I want it to be the time that I watch it and I go, you know what? This movie's pretty good. It kind of reminds me of unbroken, the Angie Jolie movie. (laughs) That's an interesting comparison. Yeah. There's so much when you hear about the story, you go, Oh, this could be real. There could be a lot you pull from. It's like and kill the messenger. The movie. It's like it's like that thing. Kind yeah, of, it's... yeah. Where you you make the movie and you don't really make a choice on what to focus on, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay. Well, there's a lot going on here, and I don't feel like I even really know any of these people. And even with your, you know, your Killian Murphys and your Brendan Gleasons and your Ben Wishaws and your Tom Hollands and your Frank Delanes and your, you know, Chris Hemsworths and your even your Benjamin Walkers, like they don't they they don't get enough time you know like i'll say this one of my favorite movies of all time is master and commander absolutely yeah the far side of the world and i prefer the near side of the world but it's fine oh controversial choice (laughs) um i i think you just watch that movie honestly like that's such a dig at this movie but that movie it's it's shot on film they made the fucking boats. That's why it costs so much money. That's why they'll probably never be able to make a sequel, you know. But it, but it helps. Like you feel like you're you're watching people live on a boat because they were, yeah. you know. You have Russell Crowe in probably his best performance, you know, and you spend time in you know Russell Crowe's cabin, you know, with Paul Bettany, who's essentially playing Darwin. 
getting to know them. So then when, you know, moments of potential betrayal happen and whatnot, you care. Yeah. And they're just here, you know, you're right. Like Hemsworth is introduced and within minutes, this piece of this, like nepot this, you know, walking nepotism takes his job and they hate each other and there's no nuance to it. Yeah. And then and it's, it's like, the movie takes there's a, a villain yeah. and then there's a whale and then the whale goes away for a long time and then they're dying yeah. and then they're like, then there's cannibalism. You know, it's just, and then at some point you're just like, what? Yeah. You know, and, like, and somehow it's none of it's exciting. Yeah. That's the weirdest part. Exactly. Is like, cause I do think, I think the first hour is fine. Like you get up through the first whale attack where the ship gets wrecked. And the movie's fine. It's def it's I think it's I, I was still engaged at that point outside of like I said, I mean, certain parts of it between Killian Murphy and uh and Chris Sandler. I do think Killian Murphy's good in this movie. I think the biggest crime this movie commits is wasting him. Um Yeah, that's happened to Killian a couple it's times. It's such a bummer. He's uh, such a great actor, but yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's so I weird. Just, what is that an agent thing? It must is that be. A, it, a representation it, thing? It's I mean, also maybe because he kind of looks funny. I don't You know what I mean? I mean, he he's like, auditioned. He's obviously auditioned for a lot of big roles sure. and kind of always been like a second choice, I suppose. Sure. But, you know, he's just a great actor. He's great. I, I always want a lot from him. Um, <laughs> it's weird. And I get that he was in the Nolan Batman movies. It is weird that he has not popped up even remotely in the MCU. Uh, he just feels like a dude who like, what is he doing? I don't know. Just grab him. Put him in it. Agreed. But, Agreed. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, how has he not played like, like one of how is he not one of the Warriors or three? Something. Or how is he not like, yeah. you know, in Doctor Strange yeah. is like yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But um but that said, I think, you know, you get you you have exchanges between him and Hemsworth. That's maybe the most interesting dynamic in the whole movie because they seem to be friends and they get each other. He basically like Hemsworth, I mean kind of muscles his way through the first part of this movie because, you know, they're trying to get the they're trying to get the oil and all that. And when you get to the whale attack, he the so the first whale they kill by the way, which is not, you know, the Moby Dick whale, but just a whale, and they use it as this sort of uh jumping in point to like show you how whaling works basically. And it's kind of interesting, I guess. Yeah, the whaling stuff's interesting but, how you get the oil. But, and stuff but like when that. they get but when they kill the whale, it's this weird moment where Tom Holland is obviously very affected by it because he's young and whatever. Hemsworth kills the whale, and he he's so eager to kill the fucking whale, and you kind of get it because it's his job, and I you know you understand all that. But then he kills the whale, and he's sort of like sad about it, and you're like, wait, what are you, bro? Aren't you not okay? It's so strange, like the way they like they sort of like go back and forth, and the movie kind of I guess wants to use that as a setup of like man versus nature versus like kind of thing. But when they get to the point where they're all starving, it's a, it's like such a slog. It's crazy. And they don't even, I will say Brendan Gleeson has a nice moment in the middle of the movie. And this is where they reveal why he's so tortured is that he reveals the cannibalism. Right. Mm -hmm. And the way he describes, he describes it in detail, like how they do it. And it's a nice little moment and it's a good moment in the middle of the movie. But then there's the other part of it where I'm like, this movie's like so boring at this point. Show me the cannibalism. Just go full. Like just, you know what I mean? Like, let's just, yeah, it's let's true. like go full ravenous with it. You know what I mean? Like just, ah, ravenous. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like just, like, just lean into it. And it kind of doesn't. And then when they get to the other side of the whole thing, like they get rescued and they've had to, they have to reconcile with like all the things that they've done. 
the movie then is like, but then Herman Melville wrote the book and that's great. And it's like, okay, so wait, what, like, what am I supposed to be thinking about? Yeah, what are we supposed to take away? Yeah, it's so I'll bizarre. say this, it's, and this is always interesting with, with actors. So Hemsworth lost basically 40 pounds for this movie. Right. He said it was like very physically and emotionally difficult. One of the harder movies he had made up to that point. And that's always interesting to me, you know, when it's a movie like this that just didn't hit and you go like, wow, Hemsworth really did, you know, I made jokes about him not prepping for it, but you know, obviously, obviously there was some, a lot of prep, you know, and, and they're, they're filming in water and, you know, in studios and what have you. And, you know, like, you know, when I say studios, I mean like studios full of water, you know what I mean? Like, like literally water tanks. That's so difficult, you know, if you think about The Abyss or Titanic or this movie. And so that's it makes it even more of a kind of a bummer, I suppose, where, you know, they made this epic and everybody kind of shrugged because that's kind of the movie is a little bit all over the place and there's really not much to grab onto. So and there's, I guess, also just in a landscape, obviously, where like you don't get these movies anymore. So I just was really. And I think that was one of the reasons me and you were so excited yeah, about it. Yeah. Because it, was... it feels like a big play, you know. Um, you know, that you just don't see that much anymore. And, you know, and even you have someone like Russell Crowe on Twitter talking about how they're still talking about doing the Master and Commander sequel. And it's that same excitement that I felt for In the Heart of the Sea where I'm like, God, will they really, could they really do that? Yeah, I would watch. Who's going to give them a hundred million dollars to to then watch some of it just go away? So, yeah, I mean, you know, you got to hope for another one. And, you know, look, I hope Ron Howard keeps making movies because I really do think like... Honestly, Apollo 13, every time I watch it, and I've seen it so many times, I'm more and more convinced that Ron Howard made one of the best American movies of the last 30 the movie's years. so we, just, like... We still haven't given it, you know, enough credit. Yeah, that I mean, movie's so Kathleen Quinlan's performance so good. in that movie. Who, you yeah. know, nominated for an Oscar for it, but, like, truly a performance that I can't overstate is so unbelievable. And Ron Howard gets a lot of those performances from a lot of his movies, which once again makes this movie a strange one. This was a weird time for him, though. The Dilemma had just come out, another weird Ron Howard movie. I forgot about that. I think he's just trying things. Like, Rush obviously worked to some degree. So, you know, you wanted him to keep trying, but ultimately this is one that just didn't really, con- you know, really, he just really doesn't, come together. So. It, it's it, like, like Kill the Messenger, it's just a movie where there's a lot of things on paper that I'm like, yeah, that should be a great movie. And he still, after the budget and all of it, doesn't manage to wring anything out of it except like a really, a, a, just a true abortion of an accent from Chris Hemsworth. And then I think you were, did you want to go back to the Chris's for this one before we go on to uh, Endgame and what we yeah, want to no, see? Yeah, no, so I, 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 I teased this a little earlier. I, was, I thought about it uh, watching this movie and we obviously, I gave my 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 Chris ranking before, but I realized while watching it, like there's and and credit to my girlfriend, she kind of brought it up as well, and we were talking through it kind of while we were watch. She watched like the first hour of this movie with me, so I mean, she went to bed before it got bad, so maybe in her eyes, it's a good movie. I don't know, um, but the uh, she brought up like I, maybe this would be better if it was Chris Pine. And it got me thinking, like, a yes, because I just I, I like him and I would watch him in anything. Yeah, but it's a good. It's an interesting. It's an interesting career. I then would it be I, better with Chris? Pine? I then thought, would would any Chris role be better with Chris Pine? And I will say, oh. I think I will say this: not Captain America. That's the that's the one. I like. No way. I, that, yeah, that's or the, Thor or Thor. Right. 
I would glad yeah, like, I would be, gladly watch Pine be Star Lord in a minute. Right. A yeah. Minute. Star Lord could be Pine. And yeah. honestly, now that we're saying it out loud, it makes me a little sad. He's, he's not, not Star Lord. Right? Yeah. It's. Um. You know, I don't have a. Pro- I. I don't really have a problem with Pratt as Star Lord. I think Pratt does that well enough. He swashbuckles with uh, Ablom, but I do think Pine would give it a little bit more. Now that I'm thinking about it. But yeah, Captain America and Thor, no. But I mean, look, if he's Star-Lord, is, is he Steve Trevor? And Steve Trevor's great. Right. Steve Trevor's wonderful. So, Steve Trevor's like know. one of the best characters to be put in a comic book movie. I don't know. He's yeah, great. I, I, like my, I like my Pine DC. Yeah. I like my Pine DC. But it's an interesting point. Like, Pine could have been Harvard hottie. That's uh, what I'm from, saying. Not uh, even just in the MCU, Nanny but in any, in any of the movies. Like, Pine could have been in Jurassic World, right? And it would have been better, you know, probably. I don't know that Pine Pine would have been as good as, you know, uh, Evans in Sunshine as Mace. No, no, probably you know? not. So there are definitely some that I think, you know. There's a weird movie that Evans made um, around the time of the first Captain America called Puncture. Yep. Where he's basically a lawyer who's dealing with drug addiction and... Though the movie's pretty interesting and Evans is doing a lot, that's definitely one where I think a Pine performance would have gone a long way. So, yeah, in thinking about it, there's definitely some of that overlap where, as we both pine for Pine, I think some of these roles could use a little bit of Pine. I guess that's my point is I can think of, you know, even if it's not across the board, I could think of roles I would slot Pine into that the other Chris's play. But I don't think I'd ever slot. Well, I, would, I don't think I'd ever slot okay, them into one of his roles. Because I would. Well, that's interesting you say that because I was just about to say, I can see Hemsworth as Jack Ryan. Oh, I could see Hemsworth as Jack right. Ryan. Fuck. That's I mean, he would have to like dumb it, not dumb it down. He'd have to nerd it up, basically. He'd um, also have to like really hone in that American accent. But yeah, and yeah, I mean, he kind of does his Jack Ryan, I guess, in a hacker way with Black Hat, which is another B side and also a great fucking movie. Yeah. And I, I don't think. Do you agree with me, Connor? No, no, no. no. I like it? I like Black Hat. I yeah, think the director's th- cut, which doesn't really exist, that aired on FX yeah. for a period of time. I don't know that they've ever properly released it, but the director's cut swaps some things around narratively that really helps the movie. Um, and uh, Hemsworth is given a kind of crazy, kind of proto-American performance in that movie. And um, you have uh, some really good Viola Davis and uh, Holt Ma- Macalani in that movie. Macalani, I always say his name wrong, but you have some good supporting uh, characters and uh, just a great full Michael May sound mix to boot. So <laughs> loud, loud, loud. Yeah. All right, shall we end game for a moment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think real quick uh, of these three, I mean, I'm gonna go Bloom, right? Yeah, Bloom. Yeah, for sure. I think of the six, though, now that we've talked about all of them, I think. Oh, yeah, I know you're gonna I'll, say. It. I yeah, I think I'll go. I think I'll go. What what was the one? Uh, I'm now forgetting it. Now. Oh yeah, I think I'll go singing detective. Yeah, ahead that's of a Bloom. that's a that's a close second. I would say. I really like singing. Detective. It's the Brody factor, right? It must be. It must Adrian Brody again. That's it's, true. It's He's top, in both. Yeah, that's the top, right. The top two of these of this whole yeah, uh, this whole that's series. That's my boy Brody. Um, but yeah, that's it. So Brody, uh, real quick, I'll just say this because we're talking about B-sides. Brody's in an indie movie I really liked from a long time ago called Love the Hard Way. Just yeah. a recommendation. It's it's You're getting a lot of Brody, so if it, you got to like your Brody. But if you want your Brody, full up, watch Love the Hard Way. And uh, I will let Con- uh, Connor, I will let you continue. Oh, no, just yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's it for now. So just... Uh, for anyone listening who hasn't seen Avengers Endgame, 
uh, before we kind of close out with our traditional what would we like to see all of these B-side actors do next, um, we were going to talk about it deep in the uh, in the context of Endgame. So um, just be forewarned, from here on out, there will be spoilers. <laughs> Let's talk about it in a in a spoiler oh, type of way from the jump. Um, so, I guess first first things first. What are our initial thoughts? I'll throw over to you, Connor. What did you think of the movie? I I basically liked it. I basically liked it. I mean, I think I say basically only because you know I'll say right off the bat. Generally speaking, most of these movies don't really do it for me. Um, some of the more recent ones I, I like more than, you know, some of the older ones. But um but I I I pretty much liked it. I mean I acknowledging that like while some of like the fan service stuff didn't really work on me while I was watching it, I couldn't help but think like, oh, if I was somebody who like really, really was into all this stuff, um it this feels kind of perfect. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm I'm in a similar spot. I will say I came away from the movie really being enthralled while in the theater. Um, I think the word more than any word that describes how I felt is impressed. Um, yeah, it was just to say, you know, we you know we've talked about this many times. Uh, the film stage show with Brian Roan and Michael Snydell and Bill Graham. Um, they've talked about many Marvel movies. They just talked about Avengers Endgame. Brian had kind of a uh, infamously now negative review, though I will say in the podcast he he does do well in kind of explaining himself in the context of his um, disillusionment disillusionment in it and kind of moral problems with it. And it is, I think, well worth a listen, um, as well as obviously all of the other opinions thrown out. Um, for me, yeah, I I came away with it being impressed. And surprised how affected I was by ultimately the decisions that are made, surprised in the decisions to some degree, and surprised in my reaction to them emotionally. Which is to say, you know, jumping into more specifics now, um, Robert Downey Jr. It's it's a it's a great reminder. You know, we talked about Robert Downey Jr. in the in the part one of this kind of two for podcast how it's a reminder how much he owns this series and how much this the MCU and Kevin Feige and all them are indebted to him i mean when robert downey jr in this movie when tony stark iron man makes the ultimate sacrifice i it got me like i was weeping in the theater with with the rest of my packed house in Pittsburgh, my packed uh, theater, 10 a.m. Sunday screening, you know, kids and adults, sniffles all across, you know, all across the aisles. And, and you know, look, cr- crying in a movie does not a good movie make necessarily. Obviously, all forms of kind of beautiful, manipulative narrative storytelling can work one way or another. That being said, in the moment I acknowledged it meant something. I mean, it did. The Tony Stark of it all meant something to me. And right behind that was the 
Captain America of it all. And that's a credit yeah. to Chris Perfect Score Evans, Chris <laughs> Cellular Evans, Chris Sunshine Evans. You know, he... And it's funny because I think Captain America was one of those heroes in this world who, you know, the first Avenger came out and it did okay, right? It basically, it made, I think, total 400 million, less than 400 million worldwide, you know, when first Avenger came out. It definitely uh, felt a little bit more specific. It, as we said last time, it's a, it, it's, it's a mutual favorite of ours, but I think people were a little like, oh... You know, they really, they they stuck to the, the the goodness and the wholesomeness of cap of the Captain America character. Is that something the world wants? Is that something audiences want? And then they really did a good job in updating that character, keeping the wholesomeness basically, whilst complicating it. Um, and ultimately, yeah, I mean, obviously, you get that second ending. Um, with Captain America going back in time and then coming back as an old man and revealing that he's had a nice life with uh, Peggy Carter, which is obviously what he you know missed uh, because of his ultimate sacrifice in the first Avenger, uh, the first Captain America movie. So those two payoffs worked really well for me, um, more than more than I would have thought. The Scarlett Johansson uh, sacrifice, I felt I, I wish they had done a little bit more for black widow um yeah the more i've thought about it since i've seen it um because i think she's also a character we might disagree on this i think she's also Mm. a character who feels very central and rooted like to the success of that whole franchise um i but i do think and i'll let you jump in here that i like black widow as a character and scar joe as a performer a bit more than you do in these movies yeah, I just I wish they did. She feels she's always felt a little and I, I'm not trying to downplay it because I do like her in the movies. But in the grand scheme. Well, of, and also let's just let's preface you hate women is what you're. Well, about right. To say. No, I. So yeah, that's a let's good just be clear about that. that. Yeah, you hate let women. Let me caveat this. Yes. I yes. Hate, I hate women just so deeply. OK, so then continue, um, please. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, no, I just, I think there's a better way to make it resonate. I think the big thing is in the grand scheme of the Avengers to me, and then the, you know, the core six Avengers to me, she and Hawkeye are basically the least interesting. And it's a, it's tough to think about how else they would have done it. Cause I will say, and when you, when you mentioned you were impressed with this movie, I think that that's, my big takeaway as well is that like, even if I don't necessarily love these movies, me watching this, this movie is a feat, right? Like it is specifically, I think in terms of screenwriting and story structure um, and not screenwriting necessarily from like a dialogue flourishy kind of way, but just from a general structure standpoint, I mean, there are a lot of balls in the air and it's a really, really impressive juggle and you really you know, because you, you can track all of it. So I'll say that, like, I have problems with the the final battle in this movie. I think from a direct, a, you know, an action directing geography standpoint, it kind of, I have a big problem with it. But the overall sort of direction of this movie, I think, is really impressive. And it basically shouldn't work. Not unlike the very first Avengers movie, right? Like Totally. Yeah, just, there's a lot should... of parallels. Yeah, the first it, it Avengers just... and this final one, yeah. Exactly. And it, it basically, it shouldn't work and it, it somehow does. 
So that said, I don't know where else you would put these two characters, right? Hawkeye and Black Widow. Yeah, we were but, Yeah, we were talking about this before we started recording where yeah. that whole bit, right? So basically the general premise of the movie is um it opens um it's it's now correct me on this. It mm. opens and it's been, you know, days basically or or even what hours or something after what's yeah, happened has happened. And then basically, yeah. you know, whatever. And then basically, you know, the immediate aftermath, let's say. Uh, Captain Marvel swoops in. Um, they're trying to figure out where Thanos is so they can get back the Infinity Gauntlet. Um, and ultimately, they uh, they find him really quick because uh, Nebula's on their team. The great Karen Gillan, I will say. She's really good. She's in this movie. so good. She's been good in all of them, and and uh, they do a lot with her uh, in this one, which I thought was great. Um, and also kind of interesting how a lot of people were saying, just this is a, an aside, but how in a lot of ways Gamora was like the soul of the first uh, Avengers. Uh, what's it called? Avengers Infinity, Infinity War. War. And how it's in a lot of ways Nebula becomes a huge part of this second one, which I thought was kind of an interesting little touch. Yeah, I mean they've taken they've taken two seemingly supporting characters and really leveraged their greater obviously place in this whole narrative just because of who they are to Thanos. Right. But like, well, and also, and also cause they're two of the better actors they have in their stead, you know? Sure. It's a, it's a double-edged sword, but I just think it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's all clearly very well thought out. And this is something that clearly they've been building towards, but yeah, to your point, I do think it obviously helps that you have somebody like Karen Gillan in right. there being able to give yeah as your like 17th lead but so basically they they captain marvel shows up the nebula's like i know where my father is they go to his garden island planet whatever and they kill him literally like within you know i don't know minutes and i do they basically do all the stuff they should have done at the end of infinity and i'll say this i'll say this um and this is i think hey when you're making movies at you know and look Endgame is basically, I mean, it's a movie, but like at this level, right, this Disney, you know, $300 million or whatever their production budget is level, you know, it's like an event, right? That's, you know, it's thousands of people. Look, you know, me and you have made movies, we've made shorts, we've made features, we've made commercials, right? Those are movies, right? Those are, you know, budgets of five grand, 50 grand, 500,000, you know, whatever. This is at another level. I mean, this is thousands of people collaborating and succeeding and whether or not you even like the movie. And I was happy when Brian Rowan on the podcast uh, said this, you have to appreciate and respect the fact that what Kevin Feige and company have done in basically making this 22 episode TV show of $200 million movies is unparalleled. And that's, I think really impressive. Anyway, they kill Thanos. And when I'm in the theater and I see that happen, I'm like, oh, damn. Okay. Like, thank you. Now it's going to be something that I didn't even think about. Like, I don't think I thought it was just going to be Infinity War again, but I definitely, when they do, when they behead Thanos at minute 13, you're like, okay, what's going to happen now? And then obviously it becomes, all right, well, if there's a way to go back in time, we got to get the Infinity Stones. And of course, and this had been speculated. Um, Scott Lang, Paul Rudd, Ant-Man, he uh, uh, is able to come back from the quantum realm with this idea of can you plot within the quantum realm back in time without screwing everything up? 
and they basically, you know, Tony Tony Stark <laughs> figures it out, you know, and that actually, well, they kill Thanos, and then sorry, huge point, five years later happens, right? Which I also thought was an interesting touch, right? So they kill Thanos. She he doesn't have he's destroyed the stones. They don't know what to do. Five years go by, people are just still dealing with stuff in different ways, um, and then. Ant-Man comes back with this idea for time travel. And then the rest of the movie is basically like a hyper-realized version of Back to the Future 2 mixed with Primer, mixed with, you know, with Looper, you know, you know, while they also denigrate all those, you know, the time travel mechanics of those movies in a kind of a funny scene. They also follow the same basic logic as well. Um, though they never really explain it and then they like you said they make that ultimate mistake of breaking it at the end though i think it's worth the catharsis for them to break it at the end with captain yeah i think i mean my big thing with the with the time travel mechanics in this movie is just that like you you know they i think in the in the world of junk science right they do a pretty good job of refuting what we think we know about time travel and pop culture while also giving the most basic of of kind of versions that that you can follow right and um and they do a pretty good job of at least and again even if their version of it is still junk and stupid it at least establishes rules and the movie by for the most part follows them which i really appreciated I mean, does it establish? I guess it does establish rules, right? In that scene, they- well, because between with between the scene with Don Cheadle and Ruffalo and Scott Lang, right, where he's talking to them, and then the scene with Tilda Swinton and Ruffalo, like they're they're establishing some stuff of like this is how this needs to work, right? The problem I have, and to basically, you know, like is that when. Cap goes back in to return the stones after the dust has settled, right? And at this point, he's already seen Peggy Carter, right? As they've had their little time heist, right? With in the in the second act of the movie, and uh, he and Tony ultimately jump even further back to I believe the 1970s. Like yeah, I think 1970s, it is 1970. Yeah, 1970, yeah. right? Um, and you get like a, you get a Michael Douglas cameo in there. Um, you know, you get an a, extended uh, John Slattery cameo. Right, right, and it's and they're and they're good and they're nice moments and um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's it's yeah, I mean, one of those moments that's that very the device itself is is you know look it's ingenious by the writers in as much as it also allows all of these people who've loved right. all of these Avengers movies to literally relive with you know some of the best moments with some of their favorite characters. Sure. Literally by going back and replaying them from a different yeah. angle, you know, which it, it's smart. It's smart, and they do it with Ablom. You know, they do it with Grace mostly. Um, I think some of it's a little clunky, and there was definitely a few parts that had me rolling my eyes. But again, for the most part, the some of the fan service even worked on me, you know, and I kind of was like, oh, this is nice. And totally, yeah. like, and when 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 they go back to 1970, and he sees, you know, like a, at, I guess at this point, a like 30 year old 30 more years old version of peggy right um you you have that moment and for a second you think that's going to be it right you're like oh he got to see her that's nice right but it does remind you of their connection and i you know as someone who loves the ending of the first avenger so so much uh it it always you know got me right like any any mention of her always gets me because i think their relationship is just so wonderful 
But um, but basically, he sees Peggy. It kind of plants that seed of him going back and then spending the rest of his life with her, right? But the problem is, is then he shows up, you know, five seconds later from when he left, and he's an old man, right? He's like Clint Eastwood, Chris Evans, and he great makeup, great makeup. It is, it is, it is. It, they do a really good job, yeah. Um, because it does. You do feel like you're like, oh, that looks like you know what eighty million year old Chris Evans is going to look like. Then they, you know, they do the flashback. You see them finally get their dance, and it's and it's the you know the final beat of the movie, and it's lovely. It's it's earnestly. The Tony Stark thing, I was definitely impressed by and being like, okay, this feels right. But I also expected it. So I kind of was just like, okay, this is happening, right? Uh, but the the Captain America beat at the very end with Peggy dancing, I, that was the thing that like literally got me misty-eyed. Um, but that said, it makes no sense, right? And like, because they've established that w- anytime you go back in time and change something, you've created another timeline, right? So you're going to like live in that timeline, right? Right, so exactly. The fact, so, so, so the fact he that would, he reappears in this timeline just right. makes no sense. But he does the Sam Wilson handoff with the with the shield and all that, and it's it's nice and fine. And to your point, I agree with you. Ultimately, I, I don't really care. It doesn't, you know. I'm not. It's worth the. Uh, I mean, could I, it's let me worth ask the you ending. This. Is there a world though, where is I haven't even thought about this until right now. Is there a world where that old Chris Evans is like he's spider versing it, where like he's from another timeline and he was able to the, pop over at the right time to the other to the, like the main well, timeline maybe, and be like, "Hey, FYI, it's all." I guess because he's got the pim particles. Right? I, you know what I mean? I you, you know, know he knows the whole, how to travel. The whole, time the whole last bit is he Captain America himself has to go back in time to replace where the they found so all the infinity stones so that they so don't that they break don't reality basically right, yeah right, right. and and it's smart and, and it's and they're and they you know with and again within the I, I you know who i'm not any kind of scientist so who knows if this is well an important thing to remember too but and in, I, this makes me laugh but the rules of the show. movie make it work right but all, yeah and then ultimately if they break it for the peggy moment it's i think it's ultimately worth it but an important thing too to remember and i always think i find this a little funny Time travel is science fiction, right? So, so like, w- when people get all up in arms about, oh, the Terminator, you know, is breaks its own rule, and, you know, Looper does this, and, you know, basically every time travel movie ultimately breaks a rule because, it, you know, of course, the way narrative works, you basically have to bend in order to connect things, right? Sure. Of course, Primer being a an example of the difference but of course primer is basically about how it's impossible right so like primer is literally a treatise on like the impossible like how hard it is to time travel all right i mean whereas it's yeah, it, yeah. The, the narrative is the time travel whereas time travel time travel is a device in most other movies right so that's the difference but yeah again i don't it's the kind of thing of like i'm not gonna you know i'm not yeah. gonna litigate the time travel mechanics of this movie more than i already have just now it's just because like it is nice it's so nice and it's like basically the best possible button to put on any of this yeah. you know what i mean and and so it really it really is nice what i will say about the um going back real quick to the the hawkeye black widow thing the the problem I have with that scene and the way they treat those characters is mostly because I, I don't feel, and I get that we've set 
them up as having a connection, obviously, from the Avengers onward, right? But Well, and that even before the Avengers, they were like spies together or something. Right, and they right? bring up the Budapest thing again, and there are a lot of callbacks and whatever. I just think that you need another... You, like... You need another, and I hate to say this, but you need another more interesting adventure there. Like, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, it's and the again, I don't part of the movie. I think. Yeah, and I and again, I don't know. Like, I'm not really saying this is like they should have just done this because honestly, the the thing about this movie, as I said, is that like everything is so tightly put in place that like everybody belongs exactly where they are from a narrative standpoint. So like. I get like from an emotional crux standpoint, I would say maybe you put Banner with her, right? And then you right, at least have you, yeah, you have a tell, much yeah. more emotional connection. But Banner needs to be elsewhere, so it just really yeah, he, it's like never. Banner work. needs to go to Bleecker Street because he was there at the beginning right. of Infinity War, right? So yeah, so it's then, you know that was another know, thing that confused me. They kind of imply, and correct me if I'm wrong, part of the time travel is you kind of need to know where you're going, like within your own life. Right, so I didn't really understand how I, Hawkeye I, and and Black Widow were able to go to the Soul Stone place. Well, no, no, no. They, I think they just they need yes, they need you need to know where you were at a specific place in time so that you don't necessarily like run into yourself or like whatever. But if your goal is to run into yourself, right? Like theirs is, you need to remember, you need to know where it was you were, right? So they pick certain dates. Okay, sorry. So that's what they mean. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why they send Hawkeye and and Black Widow back with Nebula because Nebula knows where the Soul Stone is, right? And Nebula knows how to get them there, right? So they like pre-program the ship to go to uh, Vormir. Oh, because Nebula's with them. Correct. And then Nebula breaks off with... Don Cheadle to go get the power stone from right. from the scene at the beginning of, of uh, the first Guardians. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's all, I mean that basically. I'll say this by and large, uh, the movie for me, and I'm not. This is going to sound worse than I mean it to be. I do think it gets worse as it goes along. Like I think the well, first, yeah, I mean, I think the first hour is pretty great. Like I was really into it, and then. You get into the time heist, and the time heist is fun, but I definitely like all of, you know, all of the fan service stuff. Definitely, like I kind of was like, oh, okay, fine, all right, yeah, we're doing this. This is cool, and I was enjoying it for sure. But that started to, towards the end of it, started to to weigh on me, and then I think basically, the third act, while the stakes feel really great and feel really high, um that battle to me gets got a little exhausting. I yeah, I agree. Like, it's at a certain point. I mean, look, this in. movie is, is three hours and one minute long. So literally, I mean, just in, in point, in fact, you are sitting there for so long. I think at some point when that battle was happening, I was kind of like, all right, I mean, this needs to, I mean, look, the way they get there, once again, very impressive. So we t- we've talked about this before. Something that get, something that commonly gets forgotten or underappreciated in critiques of big event movies like this, where the dialogue will sometimes feel uh, too expository and maybe too eh, stale or down the middle. What often gets forgotten is though dialogue is important, and of course it is. Um, and in and, it, and look, and in big event movies like The Dark Knight, where you have some great performances, some dialogue can really work. You know, um, you know, there's a million other examples, of course. Um, 
the actual mechanics within a narrative that's this large and sprawling is frankly, I mean, ve- I mean, very difficult, right? Like, forget yeah. about the words. You know, the actual direction itself uh, needs to be commended. So the way they get to that battle is super impressive. Now, when the battle's happening, first of all, you run into the thing that all these battles run into where there's a million people who are literally superheroes who have these insane powers. You have like 14 Doctor Stranges, and you're telling me right. that none of them, we talked about this, none of them yeah. can just like connect <laughs> the gauntlet to you know, the right person, you know what I mean? Like they have these magic portals and you know what yeah, I mean? Like, right. And, and um, even like, even, even when they, even when they have the moment where they're like, yeah, where they're like, they have the gauntlet and they have, you know, and they need to get to the van and then they're like, Oh no, the van is in the middle of, you know, wherever I'm like, yeah. Can't you just teleport both those things to like a field in Wakanda? And exactly. then just, you know what I mean? Or like, well, like then wherever, it, and then it's the Captain just, Marvel it of there. it all, right? Which is like, I mean, they try to explain this where I think they you know, cover their bases well enough, but it is tough to well, ignore just basically like, the Deus Ex Cap- Machina. Thing. Yeah, basically, like, that Captain Marvel is the most powerful of all the Avengers, right? So, and they they basically established that in the Captain Marvel movie to some degree, and they really establish it in this movie. Um, and you know she her excuse and it's a good one is you know hey earth isn't the only planet like this is happening like when he snapped when thanos snapped his fingers you know half of everything not not just 3 billion people on earth but literally like however many other planets there are they're also dealing with the same thing very good reasoning the problem is you know of course just stay stay for a day well, well no stay well, for no, one no. day the, the problem is of course <laughs> In getting the stones back, it's going to solve all of those people's problems, right? So right. she should just stay because you're being efficient, right? You're going to solve all the problems at right. once. So that's a little tough. When she literally shows up and saves the day in five it's seconds om- at the end, you're just kind of yeah. like, okay, I mean. Doesn't it feel like she forgot? Like, doesn't it feel like she realized that? Like, like she flew yeah. to wherever, and then yeah, she's I like mean, fighting well, like, some battle, I mean, and it's, it's just like, oh, wait, joke, if I just I mean, go... She's got that dope haircut, which I appreciated. Um, yeah, people have been giving it shit. I, what? I think it's dope. No. Yeah, I don't know. I've seen pe- no. I've seen some people give it shit. I no, think she dope. looks great. I think it's dope. I think it's. And dope even haircut. the Hawkeye, people were giving the Hawkeye haircut shit. Obviously, I that grew um, on me. I mean, it is a little. It's silly, dope it's though, fine. and also yeah. when you and also when you're in the movie in the five years and he becomes Ronin and he's literally killing, you know, making doing vigilante kills. That opening that, scene, we didn't really talk about it. That opening scene is very great. powerful. And it's I'll say great. this, I had this also in my notes. They do so well in really ultimately, and I don't think they ultimately succeed, um, but they do, they get so close in really trying to make Hawkeye basically like, the heart of the Avengers or something like, because he's like the most human because almost, he's like, the yeah. least capable and most human, you know, they try to get him, you know, which, and, you know, we're, you know, in talking about Renner and kill the messenger and what we're, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about with Renner as an actor in the context of these movies. And I do think it basically works. And that opening scene where he loses his family is very powerful. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, there's not much more to say about it. It's making, you know, more money. It's going to, it's going to, I mean, if you're listening to this now, it may have already happened. It will ultimately, 
I think, be the movie that usurps uh, uh, Avatar's worldwide uh, box office record, which is you know insane. It's something like two point eight billion dollars. Right. Which, it would. Yeah. But I I think it, given given this past so. Yeah, you know, it's already looking weekend. at it's already made one point three five billion dollars in right. the space of about five or so days, so yeah. it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. Uh, most if you're listening, if this is two weeks after we posted this, there's a good chance it's it's already the highest grossing movie worldwide of all time. And look, it speaks to, like we we're saying, it speaks to the power of these movies, uh, the events nature of them you know i i go to a lot of you know me connor me and you both would go to a lot of movies at movie theaters i don't know that i had had an experience at a movie theater like this ever or in a it's long been a time. minute I, I you know i would say Titanic, i would say i was a kid i remember that a little bit yeah you know i dated a girl who saw it 12 times in theaters you know what i mean like yeah i was gonna say kind of like titanic that. i remember being nuts um I, I was because I was thinking about this. The only time I think I've ever seen, and I honestly think on a smaller scale, but I think uh, a the the ratio is the same, right? Like on a on a small scale, I I th- I want to say maybe the Lord of the Rings trilogy was the last time I saw something like this happen. You know, where like, like when an that, engaged theater at the end, basically. Yeah, and just like and yeah, and just people were going nuts and like and by the end of it, people were like, Oh my god, it's the culmination of a massive feat, right? Like that kind of thing. Right. Um I wanna say that's the last time I saw maybe something like this in theaters. I guess I mean, I don't know. There were uh, there were some pretty nuts theaters like uh, when like the Dark Knight came around, but not right. I don't know. I mean, it felt newer. It also felt newer then, of course. I mean, Dark Knight making a billion dollars back then in 08 was a huge deal. Now, Captain Marvel easily has made a billion dollars. Not to denigrate Captain Marvel, but the point being, you know, one of 22 Marvel movies makes a billion dollars and it feels kind of secondary, you know? Um, Yeah, the number, I mean, the numbers, the big numbers uh, lose, lose their weight to a certain degree. Uh, the though the speed in which it crossed this movie crossed a billion dollars obviously is just astronomically insane right. even by right. Mar- by Marvel standards. Um, now, but uh, yeah, I, oh, I guess let's I, just and I you know last thing I liked the Femme Avengers moment, which people are calling it when all the Lady Avengers get together. Oh, that was that was it's, cool. It's fan but... service. I liked it though. I mean, do no, it. no, no, no. It was it. it was cool. It was cool. No, no, no. I didn't really mind them doing it. It just also took them, you know, tw- twenty-one movies to have a female-led Avengers, like a female-led Marvel movie. So it feels a little unearned. Yeah, but you of. know, the, see, this is how I feel about stuff like that. You're yeah. not wrong, but what would you have them do? I mean, no, no, no. I, I know you, it's you not. It's good it, that I they mean, did it. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to really take it away. It's right. an, and it is a nice moment. And it's I, a nice moment. And know, like something that gets like forgotten. Now, look, real quickly, we'll wrap it with this to some degree. Brian Rowan's whole thing, right? Not to keep bringing him back, but I think it's important. You know, we're on the same podcast channel, and they just talked about it. The morality criticism is basically, in a nutshell, that you know it's it's manipulative to a degree that's offensive, right? Wherein. You have the situation where half of everybody has been disappeared and killed and disintegrated. Five years go by, and the people who have survived are learning to cope with that grief. And then in literally undoing it, 
what does it say about the nature of grief and of loss, right? Basically, what is that all? It kind of it it simplifies it in such a dangerous way is basically his argument, you know. And Brian, if I'm if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm putting words in your mouth, feel free to yell at me on the next podcast. But um, I see the point, and I and I and I appreciate it, and I definitely had it in my head while watching it um not even having really been fully aware of the opinion but but just thinking about it in real time um and even the whole thing with like you know basically tony stark and pepper Potts have a child um in the five year you know the five years in between and the movie makes a little bit of a meal out of the fact that okay tony has a kid now so his life's going doing okay and what does it mean if he goes back and he fucks something up and you know changes the future um, so I, I understand the manipulations and the machinations and how that can be perceived in a negative way. That being said, I do think ultimately the MCU in its reliance on their central superheroes and their basic ignoring of like, quote unquote, real people is a choice that does oversimplify things. But I think it ultimately helps in this case because your emotional weight stays with the people on screen, right? So they have like fans or not even fan service moments. They have like emotional service moments in a couple movies where they like bring quote unquote real people into the fray for a moment. But I think it's really just to fill out, you know, the narrative where they know that the money is with the important characters. So my counter would really, it's really more of a, you know, it's an excuse really but i think you care about the superheroes and that's what makes it digestible and entertaining right and then ultimately you know those ultimate sacrifices at the end feel earned because of the longevity of of your experience with those characters so that yeah, would kind yeah. of be I, my thinking on it i cuz i yeah and i go back and forth on this cuz part of it is like oh it's cheap and i'm like it is a little cheap, but there's another part of me that's like, they did also make 21 movies before this. So, like, they sort of earned it. Like, it's, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to be said there that really can't go understated. But I will say what I do appreciate about them taking those more human moments in this movie, and it's something that I did not like about Infinity War, but I think this movie addresses head-on in a really great way, specifically through the character of Gwyneth Paltrow, is, or I should say, through Gwyneth Paltrow and the character of Pepper Potts, um, is... I mean, I think we can agree Gwyneth Paltrow is a character herself in life and and (laughs) in film, but yes, continue. Yeah, the is is the notion that, like, in, in, in Infinity War, right, a big problem I had, and I, uh, you know, my girlfriend and I recently rewatched it before, um, before seeing Endgame, and a big problem I had is the notion of like everybody stops and they and they, you know, egos get in the way, and people are like, oh, but maybe this or this or this, and they like, for instance, they like try and save Vision, and I get that he's their friend, but part of me is like, I feel like this dude would understand that the stakes are way more important. You should probably just like pull the stone out now and destroy it. Right. Like there there are things like that where people like don't seem to fully grasp the the gravity of the situation. And what I love that what I love about Endgame is is that to a certain degree, they've basically learned that lesson and obviously the hard way. 
but like Gwyneth Paltrow specifically, I loved that moment with Tony Stark where he, you know, he figures out time travel in a night and then he's like, I think I got to go do this. And she isn't like, oh, but maybe why you, you know, none of that. It's like, she's literally like, yeah, do it. Go. You got to go. Right. Like, which and, and her in, in Infinity War, she's like very much like, don't go. Don't, you know, don't. No. Do right. And it's a nice. And like, you're saying, and it, like everybody else, she's learned her lesson to some. Yeah. Degree. And it's it really, really works. I also just, you know, her showing up at the end. I really dig that. Um, you know, they made her an active participant. I liked that a lot. Yeah, and, um, and and also, just you're right. Pepper Potts in this series is a secret MVP. Like she's obviously not the only MVP. You know, Tony Stark is ultimately the MVP. I think, and and to kind of argue against that, I think is a bit. I just don't know how you could because. But the only the but, only real thing that emotionally anchors Tony exactly. is his relationship right, to Pepper my Potts. Yeah. So. Yeah. And she's not a superhero and she was there at the beginning, she's there at the end, you know. Yeah. Her with Tony at the very end oh, is it's so nice. lovely. Yeah. Gwen it's is, really nice. She barely acts anymore. I you know, she's she's basically said in interviews she doesn't act anymore. You know, if they want her to come back for a little cameo, she's always open, you know, cuz she's loved working on these Marvel movies, but she's basically doing her goop thing and, you know, kind of done. She's always been one of my favorite actresses on screen and to kind of see her get the send off she deserved to some degree in Endgame and just also remind us how important and crucial and vital she's been to these all these 22 movies just Yeah. You know, and also just the fact that every, you know, Kevin Feige and everybody they know like the core relationships that drive these pictures is Captain America and Peggy Carter and Tony Stark and Pepper Potts and the fact that yeah, they they the fact that they 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 uh, put the period at the end of the sentence with those two relationships ending in, in different ways is smart and and really does does a lot for the enjoyment I think and I think most people who watched would tell you that yeah I do think I think now let's just let's go through each six of them let's just I want to talk about them. Real quick about what we thought about them in the movie, and then just what we kind of hope, you know, where they wound Let's up and it. what we hope they do next. Speed round. Uh, so, RDJ. RDJ. Dead, in case dead. you guys haven't picked that up yet, he's Iron he's Man's dead. Tony's dead. Granted, I mean, t- to your point, and I guess Brian Roan's greater point about uh, time travel and all that, who knows? You know, I guess te- technically speaking. Right, right, uh, right. right. Uh, <clears throat> there's maybe always room for a cameo in a future Marvel movie, I guess, but it would seem by and large. Uh, well, and also the Tony, str- Tony Stark is not in movies, and also monetarily, the amount of movie this guy was making per. I mean, he would. I mean, the amount of money they'd have to give him for a cameo, but I suppose they would. I mean, right? So right, um, if, it, if it felt right. RDJ. So he's got the voyage of Doctor Doolittle on the yep. horizon, and now it's been in the news. Uh, significant reshoots. Um, Jonathan Liebesman is overseeing them. The man who gave us Brian Rowan's favorite movie, Battle L.A. Um, along with the scary Tooth Fairy movie, Darkness Falls, and a lot of other movies. I think he wrathed with Titans at one point. He did. Um, so Stephen Gagan, who, of course, you naturally you, you would think the right person to make a Dr. Doolittle movie uh, that was live animation and animal animation. Obviously, the man who gave us Syriana and Traffic and... Uh, Matthew McConaughey's gold, you would think, of course, that's the guy to do the uh, Voyage of Dr. Doolittle. So naturally, he's writing and directing. And apparently, the animation of it all 
uh, would seem to be a bit of a problem in terms of the coverage from, uh, I think, the Hollywood Reporter story. Uh, uh, feel free to look it up um, after you listen to this. I, would, if you, I think if you searched uh, on Google Hollywood Reporter uh, Voyage do a little, you know, it would come up. Basically, significant reshoots, a lot of money getting, you know, $170 million project, right? I mean, just so that's precarious. So we'll see what happens with that. He's also got Sherlock Holmes 3 that I think is about to start filming soon. So I enjoy those movies quite a bit. So I'm actually pretty excited for a third one. Um, I, I, I enjoyed both. And in uh, Game of Shadows, which I think I was initially a little soft on, has actually only grown in my estimation over over. I the think years. the last like fifteen minutes of that movie are great. Well, they I take really, it straight. I don't from, really like it overall, but yeah, the, they take the, it straight from the the story. You know, the, yeah, the, I think uh, the last fifteen are you know pretty with dope. the waterfall and stuff. Um, so those are his two things. You know, obviously, what I want is I want to know if he's going to keep judging. So uh, the judge too would be <laughs> you my want the judge hope. too. No, I mean, but I do hope he makes a movie. Not that's not the judge, but that is in in that world. I would love to see him. The judge you know, universe is what you're yeah. <laughs> I would love to see him make. Uh, give me Zodiac, you know. Give me yes. Work with right. Shane Black yeah. again, you know, something like yeah. that. That's what I want. Yeah, I agree. I you know in in a world where. Uh, in a world we'll never get where there's a nice guys too, even I would love Robert Downey Jr. to like play the villain or something. Right. Like, exactly. Be, yes. 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 Right, I would. I would love that. Um, for him, I'm just gonna also jump into Evans because I do think I also real quick what, uh, him in this movie. What do you? What are your thoughts? Robert I think Downey it's basically his, his best performance is Tony Stark. Yeah, I mean since Iron Man one, his best performance, yeah. and a reminder that he's the he he is Atlas holding the globe of yep. the MCU. The so Evans, I do think, um, you know, not decidedly not dead, but clearly probably not going to show back up, right? Because he's old and they gave him his little send off. Well, and also not on not unlike RDJ, their contract is up, so right, it, it right. would require a new deal. Which do you think? Do you think that Feige? I don't know if he has kids, but do you think he puts his kids to bed at night where it's like, or like if his daughter, his now hypothetical daughter in my brain, like had a goldfish that died do you think he's like oh well no one really dies their contracts just expire like do you think he like that's how he thinks of death i mean seems like it uh, you know the man is obviously a big fan of comic books so it would not surprise me at all <laughs> um but yeah evans i was thinking about this because this actually goes into rdj what we were talking about on the first part of this uh this series with uh with Singer Detective, Evans has expressed in some interviews really wanting to do a musical, which I say, I say, let him. I think that'd be great. Um, and RDJ has a really nice voice. So honestly, I think Evans, RDJ, give me like a Guys and Dolls remake with the two of them or something. Like, I don't know. Like, what, you know, just whatever. I, you know, I, I would be down. Um, what about you for Evans? First off, Evans, yeah, Cap, I mean, Cap in this movie, great. Oh, Cap, so, yeah, love. Yeah. I mean, I think he's a guy who's grown into the role in a really big way. I mean, yeah, as much as, as and once again, as much as me and you both love Captain America: The First Avenger, and, and are a little bit uh, cooler on Winter Soldier than most people, and uh, openly dislike Civil War. Right, I think <laughs> his. Captain America performance has only grown 
and the America's ass bit in this movie oh, so is good. perfect. So, so good. Yeah, in terms of what he would to do next, um, I think he's got a lot of options. I mean, I think he's got a lot that's happening, right? So, you know, he's been expanding when he can. He's, you know, he did theater. He did the Kenneth Lonergan play only, you know, what about a couple of years ago? So, I, you know, honestly, from him, I think it would be fun to see either a rom-com from like an established director that would just be like a palate cleanser or something a little bit more serious and down, down and dirty and grimy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just get away from Captain America. You know what I mean? Do something that's a little I bit would love, down. And I would dirty. love to see him. Yeah, I agree. I would love to see him in maybe like a Yorgos Lanthimos movie or, um, or even, you know, like a first reformish type thing. I think I think he 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 would do very well there. Um all right, Scarjo. I think I think she's pretty good in this. I mean, I think, you know, I think I I mean, I will say this. I think everybody's basically doing doing good work in this movie right. in terms of the Six Avengers. Um for her, I mean, I kind of would love something that's a little lighter, I think. I mean, I do as much as I love her, you know, non-Marvel roles and something like Under the Skin, where I think she's basically like career best, and she's oh my so, god, it's like a transcendent performance, an amazing so performance, good. yeah. yeah. Um, I I don't know. I think something lighter that that you know gets to flex how funny she can be. Um, I think I would dig something like that. Yeah, I mean, as long as it's not in that nanny diaries scenario where she's lost. I mean, I do think she can be funny, and so I think that would be. You know, I mean, look, it's it's funny because Rough Night she made only somewhat recently, and that is a movie with funny people made by funny people that is just not ultimately that funny. Um, I've I've watched it a couple of times, and it is better on a second watch, I will say. But I do think that's one of those movies where Scarlett Johansson's kind of playing the straight person, and I wish she wasn't. And when she's allowed to crack a joke and be funny, it is funny. So, yeah, something like that where she can get a little edgy and, you know, kind of similar, I suppose, to what I'm saying about Chris Evans. But that would be fun. I mean, honestly, I would love if they made another movie together. Their chemistry, like we said, it's great. It's great. It's it's great. in it's great in this movie. It's great in all the Marvel movies. And to to get it outside of the Marvel Universe now that they're older and wiser, I think would be really nice. Yeah. and then, yeah, I just wish in in terms of critiquing her performance, I think she's very good. I wish the movie did it a little bit better by her. Um, and her hair, I'm no wig expert, but it just never <laughs> feels like it works. And it well, never really yeah, has. I, I appreciate I, I do appreciate how they take because, you know, obviously from from, uh, you know, infinity war into this and the passage of time and, and the blonde hair is obviously is a change in infinity war and they make a comment of it. Yeah. Um, and I, I will say I almost do appreciate how they use it as a time passage device where it's like, Oh, now she's got long red hair with blonde, with the blonde still in there, but like it's growing out. Right. Like I kind of, yeah, I just, I guess it just doesn't seem always quite natural, which, it's not, yeah. I mean, it's a small complaint, but it's ne- nevertheless something that I can never really get my mind past. Um, so as we're going to our next person, I'm realizing 
we didn't even talk about Chris Hemsworth in yeah, his, this I was movie. Gonna... <laughs> fat, fat, we, we fat Hemsworth. Yeah, yeah, we didn't talk about the fat Thor in the room. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with Hemsworth, I mean, first, it just in this movie, I think he's great. I think the movie takes such a fascinating gamble with Fat Thor um, because you expect them, and just context in the movie real quick, uh, after the five-year time jump, Thor, and I think this is a really great way to take the character. I think it's really fascinating. He has basically the same struggle that somebody like Tony Stark does, right? It's like somebody who's got a big ego, doesn't deal with failure well, and just multiply that by, you know, infinity because he's a god, right? So he's like having to deal with this failure uh, on on just cosmic proportions for, for himself. And I think the movie really dives into that, which is nice. And it's it, all of this stuff, too, is the reason why I really like the first hour of the movie because it like really tackles that stuff. Um, but he's fat. He's fat. He's like take it. He's like a gigantic alcoholic. Well, yeah, and he's he's, and deep, he's got just deeply depressed, com- right? Deeply depressed, com- comically gigantic beer gut, and it's hilarious and it works and it's very funny. Um, and I will say they don't. And correct me if I'm wrong. What I like is they don't make any like fat jokes. Really, it's just like not really. No, it's and just... it's just more like he's let himself go, you know. And it's right. Like, that, right. That's the joke, right? Um, uh, but I do think that, um, you expect them, you know, cause obviously you can't really carry that through to like the more heavier parts of the movie. So you expect them to do like some kind of like, oh, I'm going to just lightning bolt my abs and then I'm going to be fine. Right. Like, and they don't do that. Like he goes through the whole movie as fat Thor. Right. And it's. It's an interesting gamble because even in the, you know, when they go to start to fight Thanos, which I actually, I picked up on this in the theater, which I wasn't expecting to pick up on stuff like this, but uh, the three of them go to fight Thanos and it's kind of nice because they're the first three Avengers that meet. Oh, yeah. You know, so that I thought was kind of a- Is that uh, Captain America, Iron Man and Thor? Iron Man and Thor, you know, I I, I thought that was kind of nice. But uh, yeah, no, even through the fight with Thanos, he- he carries the weight. Literally. Carries that so, good. Um, yeah. And I, I just thought that was a fascinating gamble on their part, and I kind of respect them for it, for really sticking to their guns on uh, on Fat Thor. With Hemsworth in the future, I do think, you know, not to kind of beat a dead drum or, or be repetitive, but he's very funny. So I think, you know, I'm, 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 I'm cautiously excited for Men in Black International. Uh, Agreed. Also starring Tessa Thompson, who's also pretty uh, very good in uh, – end game uh so that's gonna be a nice step and then i think after that honestly dealer's choice i think i'm just curious what he's gonna do you know what i mean Ma- you know make a high concept action movie with some really good fight scene you know what i mean like yeah you know with enough quipping in it that it's worth our while like i think he's prime for uh that stage of his career see how it goes you know no more in no more in the heart of the seas right right and i think I'll say this. I don't want to sign him up for another gigantic commitment. Um, right. And and maybe people have fielded this, and they probably have, but I never really thought about it. Idris Elba should be James Bond. Just no question about it. But I will say, if for whatever shitty reason they want to come up with, uh, Eon Productions decides they d- don't want to go with a non-white Bond, uh, I think Chris Hemsworth would make a really dope James Bond. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, he would be an interesting Bond. I mean, 
sticking with the blonde with Daniel Craig and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, huge. I mean, Daniel Craig, I don't think is a huge man, but um, yeah, I mean, it would be. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could roll with that. I could roll. Yeah, with that. he. I mean, he kind of. I mean, if you're going with the basic white Bond, still, I think he checks all the boxes. He's very handsome. He looks like he could win in a fight. He's funny and charming. You know, it's. I think it. It could. Uh, it, and I mean, you're not forcing him into a box where he has to do some bizarre accent. You know, his the right. accent wouldn't. It's close. It's close. Yeah. So, yeah. Why not? That's an know. interesting I'd be, take. I'd. I'd be. I'd be fine for that. Um. What about Ruffalo? Rough. Yeah, rough, Ruffalo. Rough well, I was. Yeah, so I was going to say, actually, you mentioned wanting to see Evans and Scarlett Johansson do something like a rom-com together because of that chemistry. Um, I kind of want to say, like, the thing about the the Black Widow-Hulk romance that they kind of tease, but you never really actually see in these movies, which is like a weird thing, it, is they have decent chemistry, but I, I, I would want to see that as well outside of a movie. It's like the two of them in a movie. Uh, playing off of each other, I think. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Would be pretty. Good. That's that's. We were talking about this before the the podcast. That's an interesting way to go. You know what I want from him though? Before that, I want him to get back to the you can count on me type yeah, of stuff. I just because he's, yeah. you know, Ruffalo is arguably the best of these actors in terms of his range and ability. So yeah, I think that's true. You know, when you think about Zodiac, which obviously him and um, Robert Downey Jr. and soon to be Marvel villain, Jake Gyllenhaal are all right, in together. Right. Um, I, I want one of those uh, and he yeah. still delivers those here and there. It's not like Hulk is kind of totally zapped him of those performances, but you know, he's daddy. He, he's daddy Hulk. Now. He's daddy Hulk. Yo, he's yeah. handsome, daddy Hulk. Yeah. Um, I I will say I would like another one of those. And even in in kind of prepping Meg Ryan because I'm hoping to do this podcast about Meg uh, Ryan relatively soon. I'm reminded of In the Cut, which is a movie that's not necessarily great, but uh, kind of a very interesting uh, piece of work um, with Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo. And it's it's a movie where. You get it's very dark and brooding, and Ruffalo's given a very interesting, intricate performance. I want one of those. That's what I want next for Ruffalo. I want one of those. I'd like to see him. Uh, I'd like to see him as a uh, if he's not quite ready to go back to something super small, but wants something maybe you know a li- with a little bit more to chew on, or could st- but but could still be fun. Um, I would love to see him work with the Coen Brothers. That's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like you can say that for that. for any actor. It's like Coen Brothers. Oh yeah, I mean, that, yeah, know, that feels like a good idea. Yeah, but, <laughs> right. but that would be—it's sort of cheating. Yeah, yeah that would be cheating. a good idea. Um, um, and obviously, Scar- Scarlett Johansson has worked with them briefly in in two movies, right? Because she's in the man with no the man was the, the man who wasn't there. She's right. the 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 kid or the young the teenager, and right. then uh, she has the brief role in Hail Caesar. Which um, has a few other Marvel uh, universes. Berlin is in it, as well. of course. Tilda right. Swinton. Tilled, yeah, um, of course. I, I want to say there's at least like one more. Um, um, all right, Renner. What do we want? Kill the Messenger 2. Done. Yeah, right. Yeah, Renner. I, it's hard with Renner for me. It, yeah, it, it's, it's hard tough. with I mean, Renner. I will say with Renner and and to, to, to his and Ruffalo's credit, I mean, they've established enough really good work outside of these movies that, yeah. you know, I, you know what, you know, what, can I tell you what I want? This is, and this is, I'm going to be, I'm going to go, I'm going to go Hollywood here. Tattoo. I, I'm, <laughs> uh, 
A tag, a tag two. Head. Tag two. You know what you call it? Tag two. You're, you're it. it. Um, you're welcome, uh, Warner Brothers. We're done. So, Podcast canceled. Yeah, exactly. So after tag two, T-O-O, you're it. Um, what I want, and I'm, this is semi-serious here. I'm a big defender of the Bourne Legacy, written and directed by Tony Gilroy, starring Jeremy Renner. That's an offshoot of, obviously, the Matt Damon Bourne movies, but is in, obviously, the same Bourne universe. And there had been brief chat uh, chatter about a connecting movie where um, the character from uh, Jeremy Renner's movie and, obviously, Jason Bourne somehow team up or they fight against each other or something. I want that movie. I, I do. I want the Bourne legacy meets... Jason Bourne uh, team up slash versus. I think that would be fun. I, you know, it's funny. I wasn't going to go that route. I was going to say um, I would love to see him in a either like a I was going to say like a John Wick scenario, not his own John Wick, but like I would love to see him as like the heavy in like John Wick chapter four. How about this? Or what if he played Don Wick? Who's like, wow. he's like a, a not as cool Keanu brother. No, he's the mild mannered one that really needs to stand up for himself. So the tagline would be like, no, set him off. Just set him off. Please. Yeah, set, 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 him set, off. set him off. Set him off. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess that's it. I mean, wh- what do you think after, after all, all is said and done, where would you rank Endgame? Oh, you know, I, I updated my letterbox. I think it was somewhere around seven or eight, a little bit higher than I initially thought it would be. I really did enjoy it. I really did enjoy it, and I felt it wrapped it up. I mean, look, I'm a big proponent of the beginnings and the endings mean a lot, if not, you know, potentially a little bit more. So, like, for me, in that ranking of the 22, Iron Man 1 is still pretty high up there because it really establishes so much of the tone that you sure. kind of have to give it credit. And also, you know, if it wasn't a success, the other ones wouldn't exist really, you know, most likely. And then, um, with this one, it really wraps it in a bow in a nice, impressive way and did affect me mightily. So yeah, I, I, you know, not top five. I think the ones I really like slash love, I still really like slash love a bit more, but, um, yeah, it's right there. It's right at seven or eight, um, you know, right behind, off the top of my head, Captain America: First Avenger, uh, Iron Man Three, Black Panther, um, Iron Man One, The Avengers One, and Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, I would put it. Uh, yeah, I we, and we talked about this after we had seen it, but uh, you know, I think it's and it's literally the way that I felt right when I walked out. Like I wasn't super stoked, and I I didn't you know because some of the worst ones of these movies. I just I get so dejected when I walk out of the thing. Right. Like I just get I'm so just like. Ugh. Well, for me okay. with Captain Marvel, at a certain point, I just kind of was like, just bummed out because yeah. it was just uninteresting, unengaging yeah. to me, and I just I I felt bad about it. I just was like, but, eh, you know. But that said, I do think um, I still like the first Avengers more than this. But of the team up movies, this is the second best one. And um, right by and a I, mile, and I, by a mile, and I yeah. do think that uh, yeah, it's probably like ten. It's probably like literally right, right in the middle. I don't really know what would be above it other than my top five that I mentioned. So maybe to your point, maybe it is a little higher. Um, 
but it is yeah i don't know it's right in the middle it's real good and i will say i'm i'm very happy that uh you know i'm very happy that uh it seems like people who love these movies got the movie they they wanted and um look and and you know the 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 industry part of me and you know uh, industry fan or whatever you want to call it part of me is mightily curious and also morbidly curious about what they do next, obviously. So they've ended this, you know, huge first sequence. And obviously you have Spider-Man Far From Home coming out and they, you know, they haven't announced all the titles of what they plan to do after that. But of course there'll be a Black Man, Black Panther 2 and, and what, what have you. And um, I will be curious how they approach it just from a business standpoint. Uh, if 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 a bit less from an actual wanting to see the movies standpoint, uh, at least for sure. now. So, yeah, I mean that said, uh, I don't know any fi- any other final thoughts, Dan. No, nah, man, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for going through the B sides. Obviously, this one's a little bit uh, more a little bit different, given the uh, you know the Avengers of it all. But I'm glad we did it. I think definitely seek out uh, the movies we talked about. Once again, they were. The Singing Detective, The Perfect Score, The Nanny Diaries, um, In the Heart of the Sea, Kill the Messenger, and Help Me Out, Connor. The Brothers Bloom. Thank you, sir. The Brothers Bloom. So, yeah, I mean, Connor, tell us once again, where can people find you? Uh, You can find my byline occasionally on the film stage, or you can find me on Twitter at who's scruffy looking, or uh, sorry, at scruffy. Oh, geez, they'll never find you. Uh, I'm at DJ Mecca on Twitter. I'm at the film stage all the time. Thanks for listening. Look for future episodes. We're going to branch out a little bit, start maybe doing directors. Um, As we're recording, this is only days after the great John Singleton sadly passed, so we're mulling over doing a kind of a b-side directors episode celebrating uh some of his lesser known really impressive uh films so look for that and plenty more to come uh, and until then uh godspeed yeah and there's no thor like fat thor okay.